Hi, welcome back to Rock Talk with Dr. Cropper. Today is episode 54, and we are going to be ranking the Grateful Dead's versions of Dark Star from their Europe 72 tour with the same format that we followed last week, doing that for the versions of the other one from that tour. And we will be joined by my brother Spencer Cropper and my best friend Jeremy Shaw, as we were last week, uh, in a little bit. Feels a bit crazy that we are already at 54 episodes. Uh, we're coming up on the one year anniversary of the show. June 15th, 2020 is when episode one was released. So that will be a bit of a celebration next week, I suppose. In the meantime, I want to thank you for stopping by. First of all, I know the amount of alone time that it takes to get through an episode of the length this one is likely to be is not easy to come by these days, so I appreciate you entrusting me with yours, and uh, hopefully you will find that it was uh, worth your while that you made the right choice. I also encourage you to follow the show on any and all social media platforms so that you can be kept abreast of all the latest happenings pertaining to the show. You can find the show on Instagram and TikTok at rocktalk.dr.cropper, on Twitter at rocktalkdrcrop with two Ps, on Facebook and LinkedIn, Rock Talk with Dr. Cropper, as well as YouTube. And you can also email the show rocktalk.dr.cropper at gmail.com. I encourage you to reach out on any and all of those platforms if you have any questions or topics that you'd like me to cover or feedback in general. Also, you can reach out on any of those platforms if you are interested in merchandise. I have Rock Talk with Dr. Cropper t-shirts, which are white with the black writing, the whiteboard design that you see on the show's logo wherever you're listening. Those are $40 Canadian or two for 70. And then I also have the whiteboard hoodies and chalkboard black with white writing for $80 Canadian. But as I say, I encourage you to follow the show even if you aren't interested in merchandise at this time. Also, if you feel so inclined to leave a rating and review with the streaming platform that you use, those are very helpful to me. And Apple Podcasts are also introducing premium subscriptions uh, in the very near future, and I'm looking into how to get all set up with that and what benefits to offer so that those of you who are interested can uh, get rolling with that right away, and I think that'll be a lot of fun. And now, without further ado we blast off into the world of the Grateful Dead's Europe 72 versions of Dark Star. In 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1... Good afternoon, and welcome to the International Space Station. 
I trust you had a nice flight up. Yeah, so welcome to Europe 72 Dark Stars, ranking all 11 versions. If you've been listening to the show for a while, you probably know that Dark Star is my very favorite Grateful Dead song. It actually wasn't the one that initially got me on the bus. Oddly enough, I tried listening to, I think it was, it was a 72 version, but I think it was the December 11th, 72 Winterland version. I tried listening to that uh, several years before I actually got on the bus and it was just too far out uh, for having no familiarity with the dead whatsoever and I didn't get it and uh, sort of forgot about them for a few years and then heard Touch of Grey on the radio in a Harvey's in Windsor, Ontario with my dad on our way down to Ohio while he was living down there. And, uh, I really liked it. And I think asked him, Oh, who's this? And he told me, and then, uh, later that summer, I believe, unless it was a year later, I got, I, uh, stumbled upon uncle John's band, sugar Magnolia and ripple on YouTube, I think. And those three were the ones that really got me and they remain, you know, top five or so for me. But once I rediscovered or discovered properly Dark Star, it was the one that really sealed the deal and uh, has remained my favorite ever since. I think it is a great example of everything that made the dead great, but also made them so unique to any other band before concurrent or since. And I think that's in large part due to its appeal to certain cognitive functions of mine, given my personality type, you've heard me uh, toss in little tidbits about the Myers-Briggs personality type system before. And as an INTJ with my dominant function being introverted intuition, that's a function that obviously is always working in tandem with its polar opposite of extroverted sensing, which is everything in the tangible physical world. So uh, distractions on the extroverted sensing front of which there are typically many can very easily throw you off course when you're trying to get somewhere in your mind's eye with your introverted intuition. And anyhow, all of that to say, I find dark star to be more helpful than any other song in getting me into that space. If I'm having trouble, the opening riff kind of sucks you in and then you're blasted off and can daydream for as long as you need to about whatever you like, uh, or you can focus in great detail on the song. And even as you do that, it will inevitably take you on some journey, no matter what. And of course, the reason that we are ranking the Europe 72 versions of it today and why we ranked the Europe 72 versions of the other one last week is that tour ran from April 7th to May 26th in 1972 and I listened to all of the shows on their anniversaries each year and I did a generic episode about the tour last year episode two and I knew I would be listening anyway so I figured I might as well talk about it again since it's one of my favorite topics and uh, as I did with uh, ranking the 1975 versions of No Quarter for Led Zeppelin since I did a generic episode about that tour last year as well episode three I thought why not zoom the microscope in a little and 
rank the other ones and the dark stars since those were the long epics on that tour and are the most interesting case studies that you can uh, pick at least from that tour and in many ways europe 72 represents the not the final stage of dark stars evolution necessarily but when it reached its fullest extent or when it uh got the farthest out into the galaxy, if you will. Uh, and accordingly, I am going to read you excerpts from an essay posted on deadlists.com before we get going here called Dark Star, The Evolution. There's no author listed. Uh, I tried hard to find who it was, but anyhow, uh, this is you know not my own. All credits to whoever wrote it. Uh, it's a great piece, and I'm really appreciative that they shared it with all of us, and I want to share it with you. Uh, so here we go. And keep in mind, Dark Star was written in 1967 and debuted in late 67 in the live setting. Okay, so here we go with the essay. Dark Star matured and doubled in length during the October 68 Matrix shows. The first full-grown, ripe dark stars are the live-dead dark stars of the first half of 1969. The live-dead version is February 27th, 69 at the Fillmore West, so uh, speaking to that period, late February, early March, 69. There are more than 30 versions circulating on tape. The structure of this dark star, this is the first stage dark star, is as follows. Dark star theme and jam... Then you have the first verse, and then a jam, and then the Dark Star theme is reprised with a, a jam, and then you have the second verse, and then you have a transition into another song, often St. Stephen in 1969. And I'm kind of half quoting, half paraphrasing as we go, by the way, for the ease of your understanding. The second stage Dark Star evolved during the summer of 69, primarily by the moderate expansion of the jamming before the first verse and the addition of quote-unquote space after the first verse. Its structure is as follows. Dark Star theme and jams, first verse, space, additional jam, Dark Star theme jam, the reprisal, the second verse, and then a transition into something else again, just like with the first stage. Examples of the 69 second stage dark stars are August 30th, 69 at the Family Dog, which comes in just under 29 minutes, and Winterland, the, both of those places are in San Francisco, October 25th, 69, which is just over 22 minutes. And he says those are fine examples of 69 second stage dark stars uh, and i actually haven't heard either of those the third stage dark star does not emerge full-blown until 72 until europe as a matter of fact but several performances in 69 and 70 anticipate it notably november 2nd 69 at the family dog which is just over half an hour long February 8th, 1970, at the Fillmore West, which is just under 27 minutes long. 
February 13th, 1970 at the Fillmore East, which I believe is the all-time best version and is just under half an hour long. So those three versions are versions from 69 or 70 that anticipate the third stage that Darkstar would eventually evolve into on the Europe 72 tour. Uh, you can notice a similar pattern with Dazed and Confused in the Led Zeppelin world. The September 29th, 71 version in Osaka, Japan is by far the longest that they had done to that point. Actually, the one the night before is uh, getting up there as well, but those two sort of come out of the blue getting in the very high 20s or low 30s lengthwise when it had previously averaged around 20 minutes in 1971, if that, and uh, more in the 15 minute range before that, and then wouldn't get up to 30 minutes again until March 22nd, 73 in Essen, Germany. So you have a version kind of out of the blue, giving a peek into where the song would be a year and a half down the road. Anyhow, back to Dark Star. After November 8th, 1970, they dropped the second verse and they did play it March 23rd at uh, 72 at the Academy of Music in New York, May 4th, 72 in Paris, which we'll be talking about today, of course, and July 26th, 72 in Portland, Oregon, and then not again until the Dark Stars of 1989 to 1994. And as a matter of fact, Dark Star was more or less retired after 1974 when they went on hiatus and was only played very sporadically between 74 and 89. Once in 78, a few times in 79, a few times in 81, once in 84, and that's it. So carrying on with the evolution though, the climactic third stage Dark Star only appears full formed in Europe 72. Its structure is Dark Star theme and jam, additional jams, Return to Dark Star theme and first verse, Space, additional jams, Tiger, more jamming, and then a transition into something else. After the appearance of the second stage Dark Star, nearly all Dark Stars take this form, but after the appearance of the third stage Dark Star, there are still many second stage Dark Stars and they are only second stage because they lack the additional jams, plural, both before and after the first verse. For instance, the tiger appears in many second stage dark stars as the climax of the post-space jamming. What distinguishes third stage tigers is that the tiger is just one episode in a series of jams following space. Sometimes it forms the climax and leads to transitional jamming into the next song. Other times, further episodes of jamming follow Tiger, such as Sputnik, Feeling Groovy Jam, Mind Left Body Jam, etc. So basically all of that is to say, once Darkstar evolved from first stage to second stage, there aren't really any versions that go back to only being first stage, but when it takes the step from second stage to third stage, there are still 
versions that only reach second stage during that time frame. Then he lists some obvious examples of third stage dark stars, most of the ones we'll be talking about today, in addition to some versions from later in 72, uh, in September the 10th in Hollywood, the 21st in Philadelphia, 24th in Waterbury, Connecticut, all of those are greater than 30 minutes. And I would say Veneta would be an, a great example of a third stage as well, August 27th, 72. Um, Kansas City and Houston, 72, that December 11th Winterland one that I tried and failed to get into before I was a deadhead. Uh, and then a handful from 73 as well, Springfield, Massachusetts, March 28th, Oklahoma City, October 19th, even though it's less than 30 minutes, uh, Winterland, November 11th, and Cleveland, December 6th, those four being 73, of course. Uh, Rotterdam, May 11th, 72, which we'll be talking about today, is the longest ever at 48 minutes, 10 seconds, including a brief drum solo in the middle. There is one from the family dog, August 28th, 69, that depending on how you list it, could clock in at 63 minutes, 51 seconds, but I don't uh, think you should really list it that way. There's a lot of stuff uh, stuffed in the middle that makes it uh, not really pure dark star that whole time. I don't mind counting a brief drums towards the length, but uh, when it's basically a whole medley in there. It gets a bit silly to count that. And that December 6th, 73 version from Cleveland is very interesting. It comes in around 43 minutes, so it's the uh, the second longest if you're discounting uh, anything that's stuffed in the middle, including, or yeah, second longest if you don't if you're just counting pure dark star, the uh, Dusseldorf version that we'll talk about today is also uh, 43 minutes. If you count the me and my uncle that's dropped in the middle 40 without it. Anyhow, that Cleveland 73 version is uh, now we'll quote here is remarkable, not only for its scale, but for its structure, which turns the customary third stage structure inside out working in toward the dark star theme rather than starting from it and moving out into space after the first vocals, rather than working back from it. And then it says here, October 18th, 74, which is the last pre-hiatus version, represents the tune's dissolution into space. And then the final piece here, besides the dark star Gigantia, so now we're using uh, biology nomenclature, which I think is great. Uh, besides the dark star Gigantia, or third stage dark star, another remarkable species of dark star is the dark star Ferox. So these don't have quite the 30 minute plus dimensions of third stage dark stars, or dark star Gigantia, but they have a characteristic fierceness of attack and intensity that makes them stand out. So these dark star Feroxes are like a subspecies of the dark star Gigantia. And obvious examples of them, he lists here, are November 15th, 71 in Austin, Texas, which is 26 minutes long, including El Paso. April 29th, 72, Hamburg, which we'll be talking about today, of course, which is 
just under 30 minutes, and October 25th, 72 in Madison, Wisconsin, which is about 24 minutes. All right, so that concludes the essay there about Dark Star's evolution. I hope you found that as interesting as I did when I stumbled upon it, and uh, I hope it'll give you some good context for ranking these Europe 72 ones now, which represent Dark Star taking that final stage of its evolution into third stage Dark Star or Dark Star Gigantia. And I should add that the uh, all of the post-hiatus versions uh, would certainly not be third stage. I'm not sure uh, where they would probably closer to second stage. Um, they, uh, at that point, it's kind of a, a regression or a scaling back. So it's uh, not quite as interesting to talk about. All right. So at this point in the proceedings, we will get on with the rankings and then I will show you my conversation with Spencer where he gives me his ranking and then do the same with Jeremy. And then, uh, at the end, we'll, uh, give you some thoughts on where I think Europe 72 in general ranks as a Dark Star era. Then I'll give some thoughts on how Dark Star compares to the other one, and then we'll wrap it up. As we did last week with the Europe 72 versions of the other one, for each one in the ranking, I will first give you some stats. So obviously where I rank it, where it currently ranks on headyversion.com, what its jam sequences track list is, and the times for the jam suite as a whole, and that Dark Star in particular, and then where those times rank amongst the other shows of the tour and uh, the percentage of the full show taken up by the jam suite and things like that. And when we're talking about the lengths, when I say pure dark star, that means the length omitting any songs dropped in the middle, which is only a factor for the three longest ones in this case. And then the times including songs in the middle, uh, I'll say that. And then for the combined lengths between Darkstar and the other one, I will just say fifth longest epic of the tour. And the shows we'll be talking about today, the Darkstar shows, are in order April 8th, London, April 14th and 17th, Copenhagen, April 24th, Dusseldorf, April 29th, Hamburg, May 4th, Paris, May 7th, Bickershaw Festival, May 11th, Rotterdam, May 18th, Munich, and May 23rd and 25th, London. So all of the shows we didn't talk about last week except for Bickershaw, which is the only show of 72 when they played both Darkstar and the other one. Okay, so without further ado, off we go with the ranking.
So in 11th place, I have the May 23rd London version, London 3. It is currently tied for 75th on headyversion.com, which ranks 9th out of these Europe versions. Its jam suite is Dark Star Into Morning Dew, which clocks in at 41 minutes 22 seconds, and Dark Star by itself clocks in at 29 minutes 54 seconds, which makes it the 8th longest Dark Star of the tour and the 12th longest epic overall, if we're talking pure Dark Star and the other one, and it remains 8th in the Dark Star ranks, even when you count the songs stuffed in the top three, the order for the Dark Star ranks lengthwise doesn't change at all, even when you factor in the songs included in the top three, so I won't uh, bother mentioning that each time. It dips slightly to 14th, though, for overall length of the epics on the tour when you give the other ones credit for songs that they have stuffed in the middle. It's full jam suite ranks uh, second shortest of the Dark Star shows, 10th place, and fourth shortest overall, 19th place. However, the May 23rd London show ranks 8th as far as the length of the complete show at 3 hours 30 minutes, which gives it a minus 11 ratio as far as the rank of the jam suite lengthwise compared to the rank of the full show, and indeed it has its jam suite takes up the lowest percentage of the complete show for the entire tour, just 19.76%. Uh, that's not necessarily a good thing or a bad thing. It means the jam suite is a little less epic, but it means there was room for a lot of songs that are on the shorter side, and the May 23rd London show does have one of the coolest set lists of the tour and some of the best and tightest versions of the shorter songs. This one starts with a nice kind of sneaky playing of the opening riff. The first two minutes are great thematic jamming, great chemistry between Jerry and Bobby. It starts to pick up steam at three minutes and gets quite intense by four minutes. Phil and Bob are both doing some really awesome stuff starting around 4.30 while Jerry is spiraling us further out into space. It suddenly slips into a shimmery ethereal state around 5.45, Jerry does a brief, very refined version of the quote-unquote dying star bends just after six minutes. That's my colloquialism for these distinct bends that Jerry would often play during 1972 versions of Dark Star and the other one for a very obvious example of them. If you go to Dick's Picks Volume 36, the start of that Dark Star from Philly, September 21st, 72, uh, Jerry does those bends right off the bat, and then you'll know what I'm talking about. Or you can go to just after six minutes in this version. Bob adds some neat stuff around seven minutes. Someone is playing a nice, steady maraca, but I don't think it can be Billy because it sounds like he's using both hands. Uh, I guess that would leave Pigpen or Donna. 
it breaks down into some shallow, still kind of melodic space slash feedback by eight minutes. And then Phil drops some huge bombs to drive it a bit deeper just after 8.30. Billy starts to become more aggressive with the snares flicked off around 9.30 as Jerry's feedback wails and Phil's bombs become more persistent. It drops to just Billy very briefly at 10.30 as if it might go into drums, but Phil, and to a lesser extent Bob, uh, stay involved. There's a pretty cool late night stoned jazz sort of duet between Bill and Phil for about three minutes before Jerry and Bob re-enter the fray at 13.30, followed by Keith about 10 seconds later. Awesome build back up into a nice jam for about a minute and a half thereafter, and some great leads from Jerry starting around 15 minutes. Phil begins to subtly suggest feeling groovy at 15.20, Pigpen joins the party at 1640 with some nice gospel fills. And then the theme is reinstated just after 17 minutes, and we get the first verse at 1742. Uh, verse is well played as it usually is on this tour. And then there's a cool exit from the verse by Jerry and Keith. The whole thing rapidly falls into the void by 1945. It stays pretty melodic as it gently drifts toward Tiger sounds like you're dozing off for an afternoon nap on a beach somewhere in the Caribbean. Turns dark at 22 minutes. Jerry starts his tiger spiral at 23 minutes, slipping in and out of it seam seamlessly. He gets intense with it at 23.50, and Bob gets very intense as well, and Phil's bombs have a bit of an underwater feel here. Jerry puts the tiger stuff through some interesting mutations around 2450. Keith adds some flourishes that give it a haunted house feel around 26 minutes. It builds into a jam with some really interesting tension in it around 27 minutes. It sounds like there's a glimmer of hope buried beneath that can't quite escape the madness. At 2830, Phil and Bill settle on a really cool jazzy groove. Bob and Keith somewhat loosely join in. Jerry starts to, and then sounds like he might bring them around for the second verse, then finally decides to pull the emergency brake and take it into morning dew. So this May 23rd London Dark Star is a very smooth, pretty version. It's not as intense or far out as most of them from the tour until Tiger, which does get pretty intense. Unfortunately, this version seems like it never achieves liftoff, if you will. There's no Dark Star that I dislike, but this one just never seemed to get there. I was out on a walk and I wasn't picking up any sort of cohesive vibe like I usually do. Uh, and this was actually a, it, it was, um, comforting for me to, uh, to learn that my variables are more controlled than I thought. Cause sometimes you worry that, you know, are my rankings being affected by my mood when I listen or whether I'm listening with headphones or speakers and all that sort of thing. And this one, I had the perfect set and setting as far as my mood and uh, 
listening for it out on a walk and listening to it out on a walk and I'd had a productive day and was in a good mood and everything and didn't quite love it. And then the one, two days later, everything was going wrong around the house that day and it was all hectic and I was flustered and barely had time to listen. So I tucked myself away in my room and you would think those would be the conditions to dislike a version, but I really loved that one. So, um, yeah, this one proved to myself that I am controlling for my variables better than I thought. But anyhow, I just couldn't pick up a very cohesive vibe from this one. And usually, uh, you know, I like to have a kind of narrative in my head to follow as I listen for what sort of journey that particular dark star is taking me on. And usually I don't have to impose that. I will be able to pick it up really easily, but this one just wasn't giving me any sort of feel. Uh, a great contrast to this version is the second night in Copenhagen, which is also quite mellow, but that version seems to work much better. And it kind of is the risky run with the extremely freeform style of improvisation that the dead played, especially on something like Dark Star. When it works, it really works and is absolutely amazing, but it does increase the risk of it ending up more like aimless noodling, which I'm not accusing this version of necessarily. It just felt like one where the whole didn't exceed the sum of its parts to the extent that it usually does. Uh, having said that, this did come towards the end of the tour and I was pretty tired, so I could be totally missing the point of this one. Uh, the transition into a great version of Morning Dew is really smooth, I'll give it that. In 10th place, I have the May 7th Bickershaw Festival version. It is currently ranked uh, tied for 36th on headyversion.com, which actually ranks 5th out of these Europe 72 versions. And Bickershaw, by the way, is Europe 72 Volume 13, if you're looking for it on one of the streaming platforms. And the May 23rd London show was Volume 19. I should have mentioned that. So Bickershaw's Jam Suite is Dark Star Drums, The Other One, Sing Me Back Home, which clocks in at 64.04, and Dark Star itself clocks in at 19 minutes 49 seconds, which is the shortest of the Europe 72 Dark Stars by almost 10 minutes. Uh, that's because they cut it off not long after the first verse to go into drums and then the other one. As I said, the only show of 72 with both of those. It's also the, this Dark Star is the 21st longest epic of the tour, uh, third shortest, a little bit longer than Luxembourg's, the other one. Bickershaw's Jam Suite as a whole is the third longest of the Dark Star shows and fifth longest of the tour, 
However, its full show length is the longest of the tour, 3 hours 59 minutes, so it actually has a minus 4 ratio in that regard. The jam suite slightly shorter than you would expect based on the length of the full show. And Bickershaw's jam suite comprises 26.78% of the complete show, which is 5th lowest of the tour, 18th place on that front. A nice cymbal wash from Billy leads us right into the opening riff. Jerry plays some cool low notes while Phil and Bob play the theme a few times. Jerry then takes flight immediately. As it was an open-air gig, there was no need to taxi to the launch pad, just straight up into the stratosphere and beyond. Jerry plays some great bends right around the two-minute mark. Bobby's chord work is excellent through the opening few minutes here. Phil is playing lots of bubbly lines a bit higher on the neck. Billy is pretty active and adventurous. It was his 26th birthday after all. Keith is in a pretty complimentary role at first, which is fine. Everything he's adding is great. It's kind of cool how he's the invisible string between it all. Takes a sinister turn at 245. Jerry slows the pace a bit uh, just before four minutes with some huge bends and then does some cool spacey pull-offs just before five minutes. Billy takes the cue and flicks the snares off just after 5.30, accelerating our journey into the abyss. Jerry hits on an upbeat melodic phrase just after 6.30, not wanting to go fully atonal or tiger just yet. Everyone else joins in for a nice jam. And then it uh, gets a bit more teeth to the jam just after eight minutes, and they really lock into a great groove with Jerry wailing away. And then it turns mellow about a minute later. Phil does some really cool stuff just after 9.40 as it's continuing to mellow out. Just after the 10-minute mark, Jerry and Bob very subtly and sneakily begin to spiral it down, heading for atonal constellations. It's very easy to get lost in this one and forget to take notes or breathe. It really carries you away. I saw one person on headyversion.com describe it as like going through a tunnel, and I think that's a very apt description. Jerry does some pretty flourishes around 12 minutes and then captures that 68-69 tone about 20 seconds later that kind of muted fuzzbox type sound. I don't really know how to describe it better than that. Bobby does some neat stuff through here as well. Then Jerry plays a kind of aquatic sounding version of the Dying Star bends just after 1315. And then he gets the violin sound that he does on the February 13th, 1970 Dark Star. Uh, he gets that going around 14 minutes and Phil tries to initiate the theme during that. Jerry then takes them into the theme at 14.20, followed by more soaring bends. Phil plays the theme an octave higher at first, and then we get the first verse at 15 minutes, which of course 
is well played and sung as you would expect on Europe 72. Jerry provides some feedback right away coming out of the verse, including the kind that would come towards the end of feedback when it was titled as its own track back in the Primal Dead era, just before they would go into We Bid You Good Night. And then Phil plays some very deep and distorted bombs thereafter with some big atonal chords from Keith. Jerry keeps going with the feedback and Bob joins him. Keith plays a great little phrase that hides behind and then builds out of one of Jerry's swells of feedback just before 18 minutes. Great interplay there. Billy starts to rumble on the toms shortly thereafter as they pass the baton to him, finally slipping into drums at 19.50. It's only a 2 minute 25 second drums which goes into the other one instead of coming back to Dark Star, and Billy uh, teases not fade away. 45 seconds into it. It's a shame that we only get just under 20 minutes of this Dark Star before it slips into drums and then on into the other one, never to return because it was shaping up to be a really epic version. What we do have is still amazing, though. has one of the more stunning pre-verse segments, which has tremendous flow and chemistry, and a very strong gravitational pull. Sucks you in and blasts you off, for sure. As I say, I've seen it described aptly as like going through a tunnel. A tunnel that shoots you far into outer space, that is. Overall, Bickershaw has one of the most unique jam sequences of the tour, being the only 72 show with both Darkstar and the other one, which is a great primal version at that. And overall, both Darkstar and the other one at Bickershaw feel quite reminiscent of earlier years at certain points, and it concludes with a phenomenal Sing Me Back Home, the Bickershaw jam suite does, one of the best featuring a triumphant and euphoric solo from Jerry, it was really difficult for me to rank this Dark Star, with it being so much shorter than the others and being the only one that cuts off pretty well immediately after the first verse. What we have can compete with the best of them minute for minute, and I would say it was on track to be a near 40 minute, if not beyond, really epic version had they played it the whole way through. Uh, but with it being 10 minutes shorter than all the others, essentially, uh, I have to put it near the bottom. But since what we have is so good, it was enough for me to give it the edge over the May 23rd London version that I didn't love so much. In ninth place, I have the April 17th Copenhagen version, Copenhagen 2. Uh, this is Europe 72, Volume 6. 
and it is currently tied for 83rd on headyversion.com, which is the lowest of these 11 Europe 72 Dark Stars. Its jam suite is Dark Star, Sugar Magnolia, Caution, Johnny Be Good, which clocks in at 6606, and Dark Star itself clocks in at 30 minutes 59 seconds, which is good enough for the sixth longest Dark Star of the tour and the ninth longest epic if we're talking pure Dark Star and other one. And it slips to 11th in the overall ranking of the epics if you give the other ones credit for songs they have stuffed in the middle. April 17th, Copenhagen's Jam Suite as a whole is the second longest of the Dark Star shows and the fourth longest overall. However, the complete show ranks 15th uh, in the length department, clocking in at 3 hours and 4 minutes, which gives this Jam Suite a ratio of plus 11, uh, which is the largest of the tour going in that direction, uh, meaning that the jam suite at this show is much longer than you would predict based on the length of the complete show. And that's due in large part to it being linked with a 23 minute version of caution. So you basically have two epics in the jam suite and this April 17th, Copenhagen jam suite comprises 35.87% of the whole show, which is the third highest percentage of the tour. This one starts with a nice patient entrance. Jerry has some great bends early on, starting before 30 seconds, like a laid back version of the dying star bends. Keith adds some beautiful touches in the contemplative early going. Pristine cymbal work from Billy at 3.30 as Jerry is noodling, and they all are in a way. They sound like they've stepped out of the wardrobe into Narnia and are gazing around at the snow falling on the trees before they start walking in some direction. It's all very pretty, but stays in that space of suspension for some seven and a half minutes before Jerry reinstates the theme at 7.40 and it starts to gain some traction. He runs the theme through several uh, neat variations for about two minutes and the others follow along for a lovely little jam. We get to the first verse at 9.45, and Jerry sings it very well. Coming out of the verse, sticking with the Narnia theme, it sounds like stepping into the witch's castle, enchanting at first, then slowly turning more sinister. We take a long, peaceful walk through the seemingly abandoned ice palace, gazing up at the icicles, until just after 16 minutes, when it starts to pick up some steam. They're very locked in with each other, unison directionless wandering in the best way just before 18 minutes phil hints briefly at sugar magnolia which he will do quite a bit the rest of the way and of course they do finally transition into it pig pen swells in just before 19 minutes and is just what the doctor ordered providing some very creepy organ work to spur the others toward tiger 
Just after 20 minutes, Phil starts the Sugar Magnolia teases again, but then twists them into some demented space stuff to match the other's atonal madness. It's like he's teasing you with a light at the end of the tunnel, but really it's another of the witch's spells. Keith's playing is superb during this space section, and this version of Dark Star as a whole. I love what Bobby does starting just before 22.30, and then the whole thing very smoothly and unassumingly builds into a pretty jam around 25.30. It never explodes into anything as universally happy as the April 8th proto-mind-left-body jam or the super-speed April 14th feeling groovy jam. Instead, it keeps a melancholic, sinister edge to it, which is cool. Jerry hits us out of nowhere with the dying star bends at 27.30. They finally reach the end of the tunnel just before the 30-minute mark, and it splinters delicately into the very icicles it was gazing at, and we get a smooth transition into Sugar Magnolia. Overall, this Dark Star is a very delicate, contemplative version of it. It really does sound wintry. Perhaps opening the show with cold rain and snow put them in that sort of mood. It's a very nice one to just sit back and passively let it surround you and picture yourself on a winter walk through a snowy forest, or to analyze it more closely if you like. Those are both double-edged swords, though both of those characteristics of this version. In some ways, it never truly achieves liftoff to that next level, at least not from an intensity perspective. It's definitely not one that I would use to try to win over a non-deadhead, which isn't the only measure of quality, of course. Its current standing on heady version, lowest of these 11 Europe 72 versions, is probably appropriate, although I don't think it should rank last of the Europe ones, but as far as the number it's at, it's probably fine, maybe a little low, um, but I think it's probably destined to always remain an underrated gem that will be a breath of fresh wintry air for the committed deadheads uh, who you know, hear the all-time great versions a lot and want something different but not an all-time great version itself. It does kick off a great overall jam sequence, though. Smooth transition into a good Sugar Magnolia, which then transitions into an epic 23-minute, 39-second caution, which, as others have said on Heady Version, is so jazzy and unique and evolved compared to earlier primal versions it really gives a glimpse into what Pigpen could have continued to provide had his health not tragically failed him. Yes, he had a great bluesy frontman persona, but he was an underrated musician and was really growing in that department towards the end here. And then from that caution into the only Johnny B. Good of the tour to close the show, and a rollicking one at that.
Okay, now we get to the top eight, and I consider there to be a significant step up from the first three we've talked about to this one that I have in eighth place, which is the first night in Copenhagen, April 14th, which is uh, Europe Volume 4. This one is currently ranked 21st all-time on headyversion.com, which is actually fourth best amongst these Europe 72 versions. Its jam suite is Dark Star, Sugar Magnolia, Good Lovin', Caution, with some Who Do You Love teases, and then back into Good Lovin', which clocks in at 63 minutes 52 seconds, and Dark Star itself clocks in at 29 minutes 14 seconds, which makes it the ninth longest Dark Star of the tour, or third shortest. It's the 14th longest epic of the tour if we're talking pure Dark Star or other one, and it slips to 16 when you give some of the other ones credit for songs that they have stuffed in the middle. Its full jam suite is the fourth longest amongst the Dark Star shows and the sixth longest overall. It's the ninth longest complete show at 3 hours 27 minutes, which gives it a plus 3 ratio, the jam suite being a bit longer than would be predicted by the length of the full show. And its jam suite comprises 30.92% of the complete show, which is the eighth highest percentage of the tour. Phil plays the opening riff solo on this one. Billy's entrance is pretty cool. Jerry does the dying star bends just after the two-minute mark. The first few minutes of the preverse feel very airborne. Walt Disney took his inspiration for Disneyland in Anaheim, California from Tivoli Gardens, which is where they were playing. If this were a segment from a Disney movie, it would be the kids flying away with Peter Pan to Neverland. The intensity builds at 4.30. Phil gets quite aggressive for a few bars around 5.30. Bob does some cool chords thereafter, while Jerry does a bit of what he does on the November 11th, 73 Winterland version. By 6.45, they've wandered far off into the galaxy. Keith hits on a cool phrase that Jerry immediately picks up on just after that. The dying star bends return just before 8 minutes. Things drop down to a whimsically esoteric jazz passage around 9.30, with Keith and Billy leading the way at first. Things start to take a sinister turn at 10.50. Jerry is pick-scraping by 11.20. Comes to a full stop at 11.35, having arrived at the outer reaches already. We spend just over a minute of weightlessness before, at 12.55, Jerry tries to initiate the theme to lead them into the verse, but Phil and Keith say, how about no, and Jerry goes along with it, continuing the weightless, compassless, slow-motion drift. Jerry then tricks them into returning to the theme starting around 1530. He disguises it at 
first, then reveals the theme in all its glory about a minute later, and we get the first verse at 1650. Billy keeps the jazz groove that he had going before the verse uh, nicely throughout the verse, and Jerry sings it very well and doesn't over-sing it as he sometimes does. There's uh, only really one version on the tour that I think could be guilty of that, which I'll mention when we get to it. And then the whole thing moves very quickly through a brief space segment after the verse and then into an excellent up-tempo jam. At 21.30, Bobby starts to hint at the mind-left-body-esque jam that they played the Dark Star before this, April 8th in London, but Phil instead pulls them into Feeling Groovy, which is perhaps the fastest Feeling Groovy jam that I've ever come across. It's so blissful. I, I love it. At 23.40, Jerry hits on a great motif within the Feeling Groovy theme, which Phil then echoes. Feeling Groovy begins to drift away around 24.30, revealing the deep, dark space it had been concealing. The final three to four minutes are some great, creepy, atonal, belly-of-the-beast type stuff. Very nice stuff from Keith towards the end. Bobby, Phil, and Bill surprise Jerry this time, emphatically launching into Sugar Magnolia while Jerry is still exploring the black hole. Jerry quickly catches on and expertly twists his spacey wanderings into the Sugar Mag's intro, sustaining some spacey notes deep into the intro of Sugar Magnolia, another fantastic Dark Star into Sugar Mag's transition. This April 14th Copenhagen Dark Star is a really fantastic version. It has one of the best pre-verse segments of any Dark Star, I would say. Uh, it's pretty long and very complex, really beautiful. I love how, um, you know, Jerry starts to go into the theme and the others say, no, I don't think so. And then he pretends he's playing along with them and then pulls them into the theme more strongly. Great interplay like that. Really pretty. And then it, that fantastic, really fast, feeling groovy jam. Um, structurally, this one's almost upside down the way that it builds up to the great feeling groovy jam right after the first verse and then detours back into deep space on the way to Sugar Magnolia instead of going, you know, verse, deep space, feeling groovy, Sugar Mags. But it leads to that great and unique transition into Sugar Magnolia with Jerry sustaining those deep, spacey wails over the Sugar Mags intro. Overall, April 14th Copenhagen is one of the best, most interesting jam sequences of the tour, with the great transition into a hot Sugar Mags, which itself has a great end to its solo, and then straight from that into one of the better good lovin's of the tour, perhaps Pigpen's best rap of the tour, and it's the longest good lovin' of the tour at 28.11, if you include the 6, 40, six minute 44 second caution in the middle, uh, which, you know, debatable whether or not you should, 
it's 21 minutes, 37 seconds, if you don't count caution, which would be second to May 4th, Paris is good loving. So anyhow, highly recommend the April 14th, Copenhagen Dark Star, gorgeous, complex preverse segment, fast and euphoric, feeling groovy jam, and really cool transition into Sugar Magnolia and on into the rest of a fantastic jam sequence. In seventh place, I have the April 29th Hamburg version, Europe 72, Volume 10, and it is currently tied for 61st on Heady version, which is 8th best amongst these Europe 72 versions. Its jam suite is Dark Star Sugar Magnolia Caution, which clocks in at 56.39, and Dark Star itself comes in at 29.55, this is that example of the Dark Star Ferox subspecies from that essay we read at the beginning, uh, just under 30 minutes during the third stage era, but a characteristic intensity. Anyhow, at 29.55, this is the seventh longest Dark Star of the tour, and the 11th longest epic of the tour overall, uh, if we're counting pure Dark Star and pure other one. It's only a second longer than the May 23rd London Dark Star, by the way. It drops to 13th in the length rankings for the epics if you count the ones stuffed in the middle of a few of the others. Its full jam suite is the 7th longest of the Dark Star shows and the 11th longest overall. It is only 17th longest, though, as a full show at 2 hours 57 minutes, so it has a plus six ratio as far as the jam suite being longer than you would expect given the length of the full show. And Hamburg's jam suite comprises 31.92% of the full show, which ranks fifth Jerry does some neat stuff, and Phil bends the riff right off the bat. Jerry has some cool bends early on. Right away, this version conveys movement. There's no stalling on the runway, awaiting takeoff with this one. Then again, it feels much more natural and earthbound than most, and I mean that in the best way. It sounds like we've wandered off on a hike deep into the woods in a light rain. This one gives me the vibe that I'm on a camping trip with my friends and, uh, you know, you wander off towards dusk for, uh, to explore by yourself and, uh, start to get a bit freaked out. <laughs> 
as the journey goes on. Indeed, the band sound like one organism, moving, growing, convulsing, gyrating as one. There's great chemistry between Keith, Bill, and Bob, especially just before six minutes, as Phil does some bouncy stuff and Jerry builds momentum with his noodling. Phil initiates a subtle, kind of halfway feeling groovy jam right around seven minutes. What keeps it subtle and mysterious is that Jerry never quite joins them, instead pulling them deeper into the forest, even briefly incorporating some staccato tiger licks at eight minutes. It breaks down at 8.40. The trees come alive around 10 minutes with some fascinating atonal stuff. Billy even clicks off the snares, adding to the nature vibes. We've wandered away from the group now for sure, and are perhaps further into the woods than we meant to go alone, starting to get a little freaked out. Phil and then Bob right behind him, then the others return to the theme just before 14 minutes, after four minutes of fascinating deep woods exploration, gazing up at the trees, sounding stuff. We get to the first verse at 14.50. Billy plays the verse extra creatively, very nice, and it's well sung by Jer. Very elegant and soothing coming out of the verse, even though you know we're headed for spookiness. Keith clangs on an out-of-key note at 17.30 to initiate the descent into madness. The others quickly follow Keith as he leads the way with some wonderfully creepy piano playing. Billy lets loose on the snare with the snares off again at 19 minutes. Phil sounds like the Ents from Lord of the Rings encircling us. Jerry builds into the tiger licks so subtly you don't even notice because you're focused on Phil. Then all of a sudden he's melting your face. Bob is adding to the madness as well, rest assured. Phil and Keith have a great call and response with their massive atonal notes just after 21 minutes. At 22 minutes, Phil, Bill, and Keith pick up the pace and lead us into a jazzy jam. Jerry keeps wailing away with the spacey notes while Phil plays a very aggressive bass line. Bill is very aggressive with the toms as well, and Keith is letting his fingers fly. Jerry hints at caution at 23.25 which they will go into about 15 minutes later, of course. And then Jerry rips off a great trill at 25.20. They go to some interesting places that are kind of hard to describe for a minute or two after that, which is awesome. I love when they have me at a loss for words. It dies down into more tiger around 28 minutes, but now sounding underwater, which is awesome too. The snares are off again around 28.40 as Jerry goes insane with the underwater tiger. Literally dropped my jaw, and I've heard it before. Phil picks up on the underwater feel and drops some bombs that sound like bubbling back to the surface as Jerry eases off. While they're doing this, Bob subtly hints at Trigger Magnolia within the distorted chaos. Billy picks up on it first and is right with him when just before it hits 30 minutes, when we're at the deepest, darkest point of the forest, fearing for our lives, Bob smoothly and triumphantly leads us into a very energetic sugar magnolia. It literally sounds like suddenly arriving at a clearing in the trees to find your friends sitting around the fire on the beach, beckoning you over for s'mores. But there's more headiness ahead in the jam suite, of course.
this is a fantastic version of Dark Star that packs an incredible punch for being just under 30 minutes long, aptly described as the Dark Star Ferox subspecies of Dark Star Gigantia, differentiated, of course, only by being less than 30 minutes in length, and it's only five seconds short, uh, yet incredibly fierce. This marked three shows in a row, uh, counting Dusseldorf's Dark Star and Frankfurt's The Other One, with a mind-numbingly ferocious, intense, and scary tiger section. This Dark Star is very unique compared to most others. Dark Star usually sounds like LSD, but this one sounds like mushrooms. It's a song that understandably conjures up visions of intergalactic exploration with the title, the lyrics, and the music, and most versions do sound like that. This one, however, sounds like a journey through some beautiful national park that's a bit foreboding because you set off at dusk and end up separated from the group as night falls over the forest, and then the superb explosive sugar magnolia arrives exactly when you need it to, like stumbling upon your friends around the campfire. And whoever is playing tambourine on Sugar Magnolia is absolutely killing it. It's not often that tambourine playing gets a shout-out, I don't think, but it deserves it here. And their energy bubbles over out of Sunshine Daydream in Sugar Magnolia right into an epic 20-minute caution, which has an awesome ending. They just kind of slam on the brakes and call it once they've taken it as far as they want to, and the crowd shows their appreciation. And oddly enough, they close the show with Uncle John's Band, which I think is their ultimate campfire-sounding song, kind of keeping with that theme. Actually, Ripple would give it good competition for campfire songs. Anyway, this Dark Star, I'm not entirely convinced that it shouldn't rank sixth. Uh, spots six and seven especially are really, really close. Um, and spot five really those three are pretty neck and neck. Uh, depending on the day, six and seven could go either way. They are very similar in length, and uh, I'll tell you which one six is here in a second and then explain why I give it the edge and why I think they're so close. But this Hamburg Dark Star is really incredible and awesome for that woodsy camping trip type of feel. Very unique. In sixth place, I have the May 18th version from Munich, which is Europe 72, Volume 18. That one is currently tied for 78th on headyversion.com, which is the second lowest amongst these Europe 72 Dark Stars. Its jam suite is simply Dark Star Morning Dew, which clocks in at 2935 and Dark Star itself clocks in at 28.20, which is the second shortest Dark Star of the tour, and it ranks 16th lengthwise for epics in general, 
if we're talking pure dark star and pure the other one, and it dips to 18th overall for the epics if you give the others credit for things stuffed in the middle. Munich's Jam Suite as a whole is the shortest of the Dark Star shows and the third shortest of the tour, 20th spot. The complete show, however, ranks 14th lengthwise at 3 hours and 6 minutes, so it has a ratio of minus 6, which is the uh, third largest going in that direction, as far as the Jam Suite being shorter than the length of the full show would have you expecting. And Munich's Jam Suite comprises just 21.24% of the show, which is the second lowest percentage of the tour. So this Munich Dark Star opens with a minute 47 long dance around the theme before they play the opening riff, which is awesome, uh, similar to that December 6th, 73 Cleveland version that we talked about in the intro as far as having a sort of extended work towards the theme. Um, I think it makes sense to count that towards the length of it. It's close enough to to Dark Star, and I think it is part of the song. Anyhow... Uh, this version seems to have an aquatic feel right off the bat, like we're bobbing on the ocean as opposed to launching into space. Very nice. Great fills from Billy just after 345 as Jerry starts to push it a bit further out. He tinkers with his tone a fair bit during these first few minutes of the preverse to great effect. He has some great bends as well. Billy digs into the oceanic feel by going ride and snare rim at five minutes. There's a loud crunch of feedback at 5.30 to snap us out of our leisurely cruise. Jerry has some gorgeous liquid runs after six minutes, letting the end of each phrase ring out for an eternity to mesmerizing effect. And then the whole thing drifts contemplatively for a minute or so. Jerry and Phil trade nice runs just before and after the eight-minute mark. Very cool die down just after that, led by Bobby, similar to parts of the February 13th, 1970 preverse, where it sounds like they're playing the quiet game. Really cool chord work from Bobby starting around nine minutes. It builds into a breezy, flowing jam at 9.30. Jerry builds a cool riff out of it at 10.40. And then Bobby gets into some great stuff starting just before 11 minutes. The jam accelerates so smoothly and joyously. Keith contributes some gorgeous flourishes just after the 12-minute mark as the jam settles into a bit of a valley. And then Jerry reinstates the theme just after 12.40 and plays an awesome lick just after 13 minutes. There's some beautiful thematic jamming for a minute or so after that. And then we get the first verse at 14.39. It's a nice verse continuing with the breezy aquatic theme, sort of takes on that character. 
Jerry does some awesome, subtle bends immediately on the exit from the verse, followed by some great underwater-sounding fill bombs. This intensifies after 17 minutes with the bombs continuing and some fantastic feedback from both Jerry and Bobby. This part sounds very underwater. Jerry does some really awesome stuff through here, actually playing fairly melodic phrases beneath all of the feedback, and Billy adds some nice tom rolls. Phil's bombs become even more massive just before the 20-minute mark. It drops to just Bob and Jerry around 20.30, as Jerry very softly tiptoes toward Tiger. Phil re-enters pretty quickly, doing some melancholic stuff with Bob. Keith does some awesome little plunks. <laughs> I'm not always sure what is the appropriate uh, verb for uh, piano playing. Uh, starting around, or adverb, Anyhow, starting around 22.45 that fit perfectly and sound like drops of rain when you're underwater. Billy re-enters at this point too with some carnal Tom compliments. Phil sounds even more aquatic than before, uh, just before 24 minutes, as does Keith. It has to be intentional at this point. Jerry finally steps on the tiger licks just after this, but they sound all choppy and distorted like they're coming through a speaker with water damage. And then some amazingly cool tiger stuff just after 25.30. Keith is really adding a lot here. Starting around 26 minutes, it starts to sound like you're racing back to the surface before you run out of air, frantic and unhinged, but still together and really cool. Then suddenly the race sort of gracefully crashes to a halt just before 28 minutes, leaving us to wonder if we made it to the surface or this is the peacefulness of drowning that you always hear about. And then 30 seconds later, Jerry steers it into morning dew, which is an incredibly smooth transition, and the first time that they did that, going Dark Star into morning dew, which became a combination that they were fond of, and it works so well it's kind of funny they hadn't thought of it sooner. This Munich Dark Star is incredibly unique, both for the extended intro and for its aquatic feel. If most Dark Stars are journeys through outer space, and Hamburg's is a journey through the forest, this one is a journey on and then through the ocean to the lost city of Atlantis. It makes it a very soothing one to listen to. You can just close your eyes and picture yourself on a sailboat floating away. It does get plenty intense, though. The waves get rougher and that sailboat becomes a submarine for one of the coolest tiger sections I've heard. This one should be called Tiger Shark. And the trajectory of, you know, it sounds like we're sailing on the waves, then sounds like diving beneath the surface to the very bottom of the ocean and subsequently going delirious, then racing back to the top, arriving at nothing, did you make it or did you die? works so perfectly that I feel like it had to be intentional. Pound for pound, as it were, or minute for minute, this one can compete with most of the best of them, and had it been slightly longer, or had some nice melodic jamming after Tiger Shark, perhaps, or before, uh, 
it would probably rank a few spots higher. I would say before actually, because the transition works so fantastically going straight from tiger shark where we're at the bottom of the ocean going nuts and then racing back to the top and then collapsing into morning dew is just fantastic. And it's a, a really spectacular and emotional version of morning dew as well. Uh, one of the better ones and really great that they stumbled upon that combination here at this show. But yeah, this dark star, I love it. It is so unique for that aquatic feel. And that's why I was really torn between it and Hamburg because they're similar length, similar quality of playing, I feel, and similarly unique with the oceanic feel of Munich versus the foresty feel of Hamburg. I ultimately gave Munich the edge because I feel like that aquatic feel is a bit more unique than Hamburg's foresty feel. There are a few other dark stars where you can kind of get that type of vibe, but this Munich one is the only one I've come across with this strong of an oceanic type of feel. fifth place I have the May 25th London version, London 5, uh, that's Europe 72 volume 21, the penultimate night of the tour. Its dark star is currently tied for 48th on heady version, which ranks, which is a uh, sixth highest amongst these 11 Europe versions. Its jam suite is one of the most interesting of the tour in my opinion. Uncle John's Band, Warfrat, Darkstar, Sugar Magnolia, which clocks in at 59.26, and Darkstar itself comes in at 34.36, which is the fourth longest Darkstar of the tour, and the sixth longest epic if we're talking pure Darkstar, pure other one. And it slips to eighth longest when you give the others credit for... Uh, stuff that's crammed in the middle. This show's jam suite is the sixth longest of the Dark Star shows and the tenth longest overall, and the complete show is also the tenth longest at three hours, 26 minutes, so it has a dead-even ratio with the jam suite ranking exactly where you would expect it to lengthwise based on the length of the full show. And its jam suite comprises 28.88% of the complete show, which it ranks 13th for the tour. So this Dark Star flows incredibly out of Uncle John's Band and Warf Rat. Amazing transitions. 
throughout the whole jam suite, which, as I say, is one of the coolest of the tour, I think. Because it flows out of Warfrat, it's the only dark star of the tour that uh, comes out of something else and doesn't start cold, as opposed to the other one where all of them flow out of uh, either trucking or drums. Uh, and in all cases, it starts with trucking. It's just sometimes there's a drums in the middle. Uh, in the case of Dark Star, all of these ones, and almost always in its history, it would start cold with that opening riff. Uh, but in this case, it flows out of Warfrat. Because of that, they skip the signature riff. It doesn't have the It starts right after that at the dun. So anyhow, I used to uh, always kind of be in a bad mood disliking it right off the bat because it was missing that riff, but I managed to get over that this time. Jerry plays the Dying Star Bends with about 35 seconds left in Warfrat, and then we have the incredibly smooth slip into Dark Star. It's a very lush opening minute and a half dies down by about two minutes. Billy flips to the ride and snare rim as an ethereal jam develops. It starts to lift off at 2.45. Bob sounds like he's subtly hinting at mind-left-body jam while Jerry and Phil gently pull us further out into space. Billy and Keith are locked into a spacey, jazzy groove which Bob and Phil soon join in on. It feels very different, but is still very much within the Dark Star theme which creates a sense of home while being way out there. It's like we're exploring some lush new world that we've moved to. It could even be heaven. It sounds very blissful and uh, totally at peace, uh, ethereal kind of vibe. Jerry plays some fantastic bends around 6.30 as the jam reaches a crescendo. Right after that, it takes a turn slightly away from the bliss a bit more sinister. Then we get some really cool pick scraping starting around eight minutes over a melodic theme at first that quickly sours into a creepy, ominous jam. It sounds like we've wandered into a cave and Phil is doing some really awesome stuff. It sounds like a twisted version of Bill Wyman's Can't You Hear Me Knocking bass part, which we discussed uh, in episode 45 for Sticky Fingers 50th anniversary. We continue to wander ever deeper into the cave, entranced by the stories that the hieroglyphs on the wall tell. Everyone is adding really cool stuff through here. Bob's stabs sound like drops of water echoing around. Phil's bombs are very low and foreboding, but very controlled. Jerry does his usual spiderweb weaving. Bob mimics the echoes of a cave perfectly around 1250. By 14 minutes, it sounds impossible that we will ever even make it back to the theme to usher in the first verse, much less make it home to the soothing green pastures of Sugar Magnolia. So far, we have wandered into this ancient cave on this far-off planet. Then somehow, at 15.10, Jerry jumps straight into the theme so smoothly it sounds like the most natural thing in the world. Amazing. And then there's some subtle spaced out thematic jamming for a minute and a half thereafter. We get the first verse at 1645, which is a, an excellent ethereal sounding first verse. 
Bob tries to take them into some upbeat thematic jamming coming out of the verse, but Billy has other ideas. He initiates a tribal sort of space jazz groove that Phil and Keith get in on right away. We found our way out of the cave and are now wandering around the forest with whatever this planet's version of Ewoks are. For any of you Star Wars fans, those little teddy bears from Return of the Jedi. Bob has some nice vibrato starting around 1950 as he joins in. Phil really shines through here starting around 20 minutes. He hits on feeling groovy at 2110 and they all oblige. Bob still with that gorgeous vibrato. It's a beautiful mellow start to feeling groovy jam. Jerry joins in earnest at 22 minutes with some sublime leads like an eagle careening over a waterfall and down into a vibrant meadow. It's such a smooth, flowing, feeling groovy jam, gently rolling through several peaks and valleys, twists and turns. It starts to veer away around 25 minutes. Billy's playing becomes more aggressive, a nice bass ride in Tom's groove. Jerry seems to change his mind slightly as he, Phil, and Keith take a half a step or so back towards feeling groovy jam to bid it one last farewell. And I say step as in, you know, in our imaginary journey, not a half step musically speaking. Bob goes with Billy, subtly driving it towards Tiger. The others abandon feeling groovy jam for good and head towards Tiger as well just before 27 minutes. This planet that we've been exploring is flat, and our vessel is approaching the edge, the mist from the drop now visible. Phil does some cool muted plucking starting around 28.10 and becoming more persistent about 30 seconds later. Billy's playing is very animalistic just after 29 minutes. Phil tosses in a few bombs just after 29.30, right as Jerry and Bob spike. Some great distorted stuff from Jerry and Bob around 30 minutes, 30 seconds. Billy starts to tease Sugar Magnolia very briefly around 31.15, a little beacon of hope amidst the madness. Jerry finally starts to initiate Tiger at 32.20. It reaches incredible intensity by 33 minutes and sustains it for a good 30 seconds. It sounds like you're going to explode and then crashes back down in cacophonous waves, including Pigpen joining the party at the absolute perfect time with the perfect accompaniment. It shows how close he was sitting there listening, you know, not just twiddling his thumbs waiting for a song where he plays a more integral part, sitting there enjoying it just like the crowd, waiting for the perfect moment to add some Hammond organ accompaniment. And then Bob and Bill tease sugar mags again about 40 seconds before they finally do flip the switch they're more persistent the second time and everyone flips it with them it's an incredibly smooth transition especially to move from absolute peak tiger into sugar magnolia in less than a minute Wow, what a unique and cohesive journey. It really does sound like exploring some far-off planet to me. Most of the time isn't spent in the spaceship cruising through the galaxy, 
but rather out and about in this foreign world, that doesn't stop it from getting just as far out or intense as any of them. It's as if it starts way out there, flowing out of almost 20 minutes of sublime Uncle John's Band and Warfrat, so it doesn't have to spend the first part of the pre-verse voyaging out and setting the stage and getting you into the headspace. It can just get out of the spaceship and explore right away. The individual playing on this one is really excellent, and the whole thing really moves as one. There are very few moments where any one member, including Jerry, stands out above the rest. It feels at times like you're being shown a creation story, even if it's not the creation story. Not in a watching a movie sort of way, more like a really immersive ride at an amusement park, but you're taken back in time to experience it in real time. Or perhaps we're there in real time, witnessing the creation of a world that hasn't been yet. Perhaps not one to convert someone, but one that a seasoned deadhead will enjoy immensely, and that will hold up to repeated listens. I already feel like I want to go back to this world and turn my head the other way this time to see what I missed on the first go. And it helps that it's part of one of the best and most unique jam suites of the tour. Jerry's solo in Uncle John's band is stunningly beautiful, one of the best that I've heard. And then in the 7-4 section, it's almost like you can tell it's not going to be a standalone Uncle John's band. You're being sucked slowly but surely towards it. And then a phenomenal transition into an excellent wharf rat on the way to Darkstar, and a great smooth transition between those two, and then an incredibly smooth and expert transition from Dark Star into a great Sugar Magnolia. Also, maybe it's just with this one being in London, but the cave section before the first verse, you could also think of it like, um, it kind of sounds like you're back in time 150 years or so, and Jack the Ripper's following you through some alley in old London at night. And in fourth place, winning the Flint, Michigan Mega Bowl, if you've seen Semi Pro, uh, the basketball movie with Will Ferrell, they, uh, they're trying to get fourth place so that they get merged into the NBA and they call the final game of the season the Mega Bowl. Anyhow, in fourth place, I have the April 8th London version, Europe 72, Volume 2, the second night at Wembley. And that one is currently ranked 8th on Heady version, which is the highest of all of the Europe 72 versions. Its jam suite is Dark Star Sugar Magnolia Caution, clocking in at 56.10, and Dark Star itself clocks in at 31.23, which is the, which is the fifth longest Dark Star of the tour, and the eighth longest epic overall if we're talking pure Dark Star, pure other one. 
slipping to 10th if you give the others credit for stuff that is crammed in the middle. The full jam suite on April 8th is the 8th longest amongst the Dark Star shows and the 12th longest of the tour. The complete show ranks 16th lengthwise at 2 hours 59 minutes, so it has a ratio of plus 4, the 4th highest in that direction, with the jam suite being longer than you would expect based on the length of the full show. And its jam suite comprises 31.28% of the full show, which is the 7th highest percentage of the tour. The intro of this one is very speedy, like they can't wait to get started. The first three minutes of the preverse fly by, very buoyant, but I wouldn't say light. There's a crackling intensity to this whole show that carries even through the Dark Star preverse and the whole thing, of course. But we take a turn into more intense territory shortly thereafter. It sounds like we're plunging down a wormhole. Just after six minutes, Jerry hits on a very cool phrase that the others latch onto, and it builds to a very nice group peak halfway through the preverse. Phil is incredibly aggressive when Jerry first hits on it. Jerry's playing is very intense, especially around 7.30. This Dark Star is no wandering space expedition. It's very energetic and focused. Starting about 30 seconds later, Jerry plays some very gripping bends that suggest our journey will not be a peaceful, or should I say, undisturbed one. Jerry mercifully initiates the theme to lead us into the first verse around 10.30, just as Keith is laying down some very pretty compliments. It sounds like Phil was ready to head further into space first. If I were to have one small bone to pick with this version other than the bordering on too fast playing of the opening riff, it would be that the return to the theme to lead us into the verse is a bit abrupt compared to the usual organic flow. Uh, and then we get the first verse about a minute later, which is very well sung by Jerry, although it's the one instance I alluded to where you could potentially accuse him of over-singing it on this one. Uh, so apart from those two small bones to pick, this version's great. Uh, and Billy plays particularly aggressively during the first verse. Phil does some cool bends coming out of the verse. It dips into some weightless space following the verse, but on this version it feels more like a Formula One car making a quick pit stop than complete directionless wandering. And Pigpen pipes up during this space section. I love Dark Stars where he finds a way to contribute. At 1740, we are moving. The chemistry is fantastic. They're all kind of doing their own thing, but kind of doing the same thing too. Fabulous interplay. It starts to get extremely intense around 1930, with both Jerry and Bob really digging deeper. Pigpen continues to make meaningful contributions. 
He's such an underrated musician. As I've said, people think of him for his bluesy frontman abilities, and rightfully so, but he knew his way around an organ and a harmonica, and he could write, too. The intensity subsides around 23 minutes for an ethereal interlude, which you can never quite tell if it's comforting or foreboding. Billy does some nice stuff on the toms through here, then switches to very schizophrenic cymbal work as the others steer us into the bottom of the pit. Phil is very wired on this one. He keeps blowing along through the tiger section. Billy alternates between keeping pace with Phil and echoing the madness of the others. And it really is madness. Do not listen to this in a state that you can't handle. It's incredibly entertaining and interesting throughout, though. It doesn't feel one bit like the four to five minutes that it takes up. And they move incredibly smoothly from there into a jam that bears much resemblance to Mind Left Body Jam for the final four minutes or so of this Dark Star. The uh, September 21st, 72 Philly Dark Star contains what's considered to be the first proper Mind Left Body Jam, but this sounds quite similar to that. I think we could call it a proto-Mind Left Body Jam. I've always thought that it and the Philly one that's actually a Mind Left Body Jam sound a bit like the Seventh Heaven theme song. I don't know if any of you ever watched that show, but it always puts a smile on my face because it reminds me of watching it after school on a warm fall afternoon while my mom would be making spaghetti. Anyhow, that proto Mind Left Body Jam is four of the prettiest minutes in their entire catalog and a very smooth transition into Sugar Magnolia, perhaps the smoothest. Uh, and it's a nice version of Sugar Mags, which then flows smoothly into the first caution in a little over a year. And what a ripper it is, potentially the best ever. Uh, it currently holds a sizable lead over the field on heady version. And then the One More Saturday Night Encore immediately afterwards also holds a sizable lead over the field and is balls-to-the-wall madness. The whole April 8th show is so energetic and fierce, uh, only held back by being shorter than a lot of the others, which might be seen as a plus to some, actually. This April 8th London version is a phenomenal Dark Star, probably top 10 of all time, and it's currently regarded as such. It's uh, currently an 8th on Heady version, and that's probably a pretty fair ranking. It's so energetic, so smooth, so creative, so tight, and it's really properly balanced as far as the length of each section. Uh, you know, the first verse occurring about a third of the way through and it having long and interesting jams after the verse. Um, in, uh, you know, at once you get beyond 72, uh, 73 and 74, when you're still technically in the third stage Dark Star era, a lot of times the pre-verse jam would be epic and then they would seem to get bored with it and kind of abandon ship into something else rather quickly after the first verse, which uh, always kind of bugs me a little. Uh, this one has really great uh, balance uh, as far as 
formula-wise, with each section of the song taking up the proper chunk of time. And uh, as I say, kicks off a great overall jam sequence in one of the most consistently explosive jam suites of the tour. As I say, the only things I could really find wrong with this Dark Star, and it's getting pretty nitpicky to say wrong, but the opening riff is played almost too fast, and the transition into the theme before the verse is ever so slightly abrupt compared to some, and Jerry slightly oversings the first verse, which, uh, as I say, is nitpicky, but when you're determining the order of the top four, you have to uh, dig pretty deep in that regard sometimes. It does have that gorgeous proto-mind-left-body jam, though, of course, which is big points for this version. Uh, as I said, some of the most gorgeous playing in their catalog, and those quote-unquote mistakes that I mentioned make sense in light of the most defining characteristic of this version, which I would say is the energy, um, you know, as I said with the Hamburg one, most Dark Stars sound like LSD, that Hamburg one sounds like mushrooms, well this would be the cocaine Dark Star if I ever had to pick one. It's just very shiny and bristling at the seams the whole way. You know, maybe that May 23rd London one that I ranked last would be the heroin Dark Star. Kind of nice, but sort of floats along and loses its sense of direction a bit. Anyhow, April 8th, London Dark Star, the most coked up Dark Star I've ever heard, and a top 10 version all time, fourth best of Europe 72 in my opinion. Now in third place, and this is another spot where it got very difficult for me choosing between second and third, I have the April 24th version in Dusseldorf, which is uh, Europe 72 Volume 8, and it is currently ranked 17th on Heady version, which is third highest amongst these Europe versions. Its jam suite is... Dark Star, Me and My Uncle, Dark Star, Wharf Rat, Sugar Magnolia, clocking in at 60 minutes, one second. And Dark Star, Me and My Uncle, Dark Star comes in at 43.45. And Dark Star, if you cut out Me and My Uncle, is 40 minutes, 23 seconds long. Which is the second longest Dark Star of the tour, and I believe in the top five for sure uh, lengthwise for Dark Stars all time uh, might even be third behind uh, Rotterdam from this tour and that Cleveland 73 version those could be the only three that hit 40 minutes uh, I'm not sure anyhow it ranks very high lengthwise all time and second longest of the tour 
second longest epic of the tour overall, if we're talking pure Dark Star, pure the other one. And it remains the second longest epic when you give them all credit for songs that they have stuffed in the middle about a minute longer than the Paris version of the other one. The Dusseldorf Jam Suite is the fifth longest of the Dark Star shows and the ninth longest overall. The full show ranks 11th lengthwise at 3 hours 25 minutes, so it has a plus 2 ratio, the Jam Suite a little longer than you would expect based on the length of the whole show. And Dusseldorf's Jam Suite comprises 29.27% of the complete show, which is the 11th highest percentage of the tour, so right in the middle. As a matter of fact, it is the closest to the tour average, which is 29.32%. The opening minute and a half of Dusseldorf Dark Star, Dusseldark Star, is uh, simply gorgeous, like they're in the launching room gazing at the stars that they're about to voyage to, making sure everyone is there before they blast off. And if you look at pictures of the Rhine Hall, it has a gorgeous ceiling that you can just picture them gazing up at as they play the, the delicate, patient intro. They pick up a bit of steam and start heading into space, then quiet down and get contemplative around 3.30. Great Jerry and Bob interplay. We've stumbled into some spooky space on our journey at 5.30. Perhaps we've hit an asteroid field. Billy is very creative during this preverse, and aggressive wherever remotely suitable. Dusseldorf is a great show for Billy overall. His bass drum sounds a bit uh, punchier even which contributes to it being the heaviest show of the tour, in my opinion. Phil plays with so much distortion, it sounds like he broke his bass from about 7.30 to 8 minutes. Jerry then starts playing the Dark Star theme deliberately in the wrong key, and Keith and Bob respond with some excellent dissonant stabs. It's like they're trying to mess with people listening in the future like us. Jerry picks it up and leads them into a brief but extremely aggressive and intense jam for a minute or so. It then winds back down almost to weightlessness before initiating the Dark Star theme just after 10 minutes. Jerry throws in some of those dying star bends during the ensuing minute of the theme before the verse. The first verse comes just after 11 minutes. Billy and Keith are especially good during this verse. Jerry sings it fantastically great enunciation on the forces tear loose from the axis and cool echo on the word casting. Very cool chords from Bobby coming out of the verse, followed by some excellent stuff from Keith and Billy. Excellent, intense, and interesting atonal space thereafter. Features some really cool feedback. They all turn in highlight reel performances individually but most importantly, they're perfectly in sync. It all complements each other.
Just after 15 minutes, Keith, Phil, and Billy begin to set sail on a jazzy excursion while Jerry and Bob are still in atonal mode. They quickly switch gears to follow the others, though, and a spectacular jam ensues. Jerry is absolutely on fire, and Bob and Keith are so perfectly in sync. It devolves into atonal again just before 18 minutes. Phil hits on a cool theme about a minute later while everyone else is wailing away. Rather than fighting an uphill battle, though, Phil decides to join them. We then get one of the best, scariest, and most intense tiger sections of them all, probably the best of the tour in that regard, at least on the Dark Star front. Uh, the show after this, two nights later in Frankfurt, uh, the tiger during that other one would be the only one that could compete for best of the tour, but yeah, this Dusseldorf Dark Star tiger section is nuts. Jerry leaves absolutely no mercy. They're also so in sync, though, and it's very musical, actually, beneath the sheer mind-bending intensity. It sounds like they're racing each other to the deepest, darkest, furthest, most forbidden corner of the galaxy, aggressively trying to go even further out than they have before. Jerry hints at the other one very briefly at 2330. It's very hard to know who or what to single out on this version because it seems like every second someone is doing something new and exciting which some or all of the others then join in on and so on it's a true master class in group improvisation that must be heard to be believed at 2545 bob yanks them smoothly into me and my uncle as their atonal madness is winding down pigpen comes alive during me and my uncle it's an excellent wired version of it that kind of retains a certain dark star quality to it throughout. It's like you can tell that it's within a dark star and not a standalone me and my uncle. I love how songs they would include in dark star and more often the other one uh, would take on the character of the, the spacey epic that they're within. You know, it's still a cowboy song just taking place in a saloon on some other planet. Billy, Jerry, and Pigpen slam on the brakes in such a cool, controlled cacophony type way at the end of Me and My Uncle. Keith then cascades down, and he, Bill, and Pigpen drop out for about 30 seconds while Jerry, Bob, and Phil reestablish the Dark Star atmosphere with some weightless drifting. Keith rejoins about 30 seconds later, but Billy and Pigpen remain silent. There's some great outer reaches weightlessness from the four who are playing for a few minutes. You can hear Billy's tambourine off mic just after three minutes in part two. I assume it's him, I'm not sure. Then we get a great little Phil-Keith duel around four minutes while it's still quite nebulous and drifting. Billy comes in with some maracas briefly around 5.30 and it fits perfectly. Bob abandons Jerry and joins in with Phil and Keith briefly at six minutes, and Bob then does some cool flourishes. At around 6.45, uh, in part two that is, Billy builds them back up to full steam and a purposeful group jam ensues. It sounds like the reluctant hero taking their rightful place and racing back to Earth to save the day. Phil gets quite boisterous at nine minutes while Keith and Bobby dance for a while. Jerry is playing with some interesting ideas through here, 
And around 10.15, Keith starts to join him, then Bobby shortly thereafter, then Phil. It undergoes a cool transfiguration leading up to 12 minutes. In some ways, I prefer these unique jams to the ones that become standards within their live shows or became standards, like Mind Left Body Jam, Feeling Groovy Jam, etc. You know, it just gives more uniqueness to it. They all contribute to taking it in interesting directions for a few minutes, with Bob especially lending it a country feel with his riffing towards the end. They all flame out spectacularly in sync at 14.38 as Jerry reinstates the theme, sounding like he's going to lead them into the second verse, only to change his mind and go into Warfrat 15 seconds later. It's a fantastic, smooth transition. In a way, I wish they had gone through with the second verse, but it goes into Warfrat so nicely, and it's a spectacularly played and sung Warfrat, so it'd be a shame to have missed it. Thankfully, they played the second verse, May 4th in Paris. This Dusseldorf Dark Star is a stunning, powerful, and intense version one of the spookiest and most intense that I've heard, if not the most, but also very beautiful. Even though it's over 40 minutes long, 43, 45, including me and my uncle, it doesn't feel like a second is wasted. The atonal space portions are as intense as any, but they remain very musical and together throughout the chaos. It always feels like you're moving. As I said, it sounds like you're racing as far into outer space as possible pre-me and my uncle, and then racing back to Earth to save the day like Simba returning to the Pride Lands after me and my uncle. As uh, a user called Mary Jerry on Heady Version says, this one never sounds the same twice. And speaking of me and my uncle, its inclusion actually doesn't detract from the mood at all. In fact, it fits perfectly, and I would say even adds to it. with that Simba reference I made to the Lion King, uh, there's a kind of meta thing going on there with uh, Uncle and me and my uncle and Scar being Simba's uncle and the reason that uh, he had to return to the Pride Lands. Obviously, uh, Lion King wasn't released for another 22 years after this, but it's based on Hamlet, so you never know. I don't actually think there's any connection to Hamlet, but the reluctant hero returning to save the day is uh, an archetype in the collective unconscious, so or collective subconscious. So, uh, you know, when you're at this level of improvisation, a lot of times the ideas that are coming to you are from the subconscious, so uh, that could have contributed. I love the ending. It's like they all decide at the same time, Okay, that's it, we're finished. And Jerry thinks about going into the second verse, but instead goes into a fantastic version of Warfrat with very impassioned vocals. And Warfrat then flows seamlessly into one of the very best versions of Sugar Magnolia that they ever did. I'd probably say top five. Great opening verses, Jerry's solo is unbelievable. Not his shreddiest, but truly sublime phrasing and structure. 
almost made me cry. Pure steal your face stuff. And Billy is superb during it too. They speed up noticeably launching into Sunshine Daydream, but it works. Bob yells, get up, and Jerry steps on the wah. Only May 4th Paris might top Dusseldorf for the tour for Sugar Magnolia, and it would be between Dusseldorf, that Paris one, and Veneta for best Sugar Magnolia ever, I would say. Anyhow, uh, so they understandably take the rare second intermission after uh, Sugar Mags to recover their energy, so Dusseldorf's actually split into three sets, even though it's only the 11th longest show of the tour. And then after, when they come back out for the third set, Bob says, I say, my dog has no nose. And Phil says, no nose? How does he smell? And then Bob says, bloomin' awful. And they say, we just wanted to see how many of you would understand that. And then they play a little zippity-doo-dah tuning tease. Anyhow, this Dusseldorf Dark Star is a truly phenomenal, all-time great version I would probably say top five, very close to that, top ten for sure. And I'm not entirely convinced that I got the order right between it and number two. As I say, it's so close. Uh, They kind of do different things, and I'm obviously going to explain why I gave the tiebreaker to the one that I did in a second here. But this Dusseldorf Darkstar is amazing, Uh, really intense, uh, complicated, but has a great sort of storyline and arc to it, a nice through line. I can't say enough good things about Dusseldorf Darkstar. In second place, I have the May 4th Paris version, which is Europe 72 Volume 12, and it is currently tied for 54th on HeadyVersion.com, which is 7th highest of these Europe 72 versions, and I have to say that might be the single biggest atrocity in all of the Heady version rankings, having this Dark Star that low. And uh, anyhow, you'll see why in a moment, but I think that's total crap. Or uh, as the uh, sales associate at Marine Layer in Malibu said, uh, when my brother uh, was uh, buying one of their mystery tees that they sell in the tube, you don't know what t-shirt you're going to get and you have to stick with whatever one you get. He had just moved from England and he said, hopefully you don't get one that's total crap, you know. Uh, Anyhow, this Dark Star being tied for 54th is total crap. This May 4th Paris Jam Suite, the uh, Paris 2, second night in a row in Paris, the Jam Suite is Dark Star, Drums, Dark Star, Sugar Magnolia. They uh, come up for air for 30 seconds or so before what I think is the all-time best Sing Me Back Home, so unfortunately it doesn't get counted towards the Jam Suite. Anyhow, just... Dark Star Drums, Dark Star Sugar Mags, clocks in at 4632. 
just dark star with the drums in the middle is 3927 and if you cut out drums the two pieces of dark star add up to 36 minutes 55 seconds which is the third longest dark star of the tour and the third longest epic in general if we're talking pure dark star pure other one and it slips to sixth longest epic when you give them all credit for stuff that they have crammed in the middle. The Full Jam Suite ranks ninth amongst the Dark Star shows, or third shortest, and 18th for the whole tour, or fifth shortest. Uh, the Full Show, though, ranks seventh lengthwise, three hours, 34 minutes. So this show has a minus 11 ratio in that regard, tied for the uh, the furthest disparity in that direction with the May 23rd London show. And the jam suite only comprises 21.73% of the whole show, which ranks 19th or 4th lowest. And this show takes advantage of that by having a really unique set list compared to the rest of the tour. When I ranked them, all the set lists based on uh, rarity points compared to the other shows of the tour, the second night in Paris came out on top for total score. May 24th, London came out on top for average score per song. But anyhow, enough numbers. The second set of this show kicks off with the longest pure good lovin' or uninterrupted good lovin' of the tour at 23 minutes, and it's a really great one. And then next time you see me ramble on Rose and Jackstraw, which are all great versions, and I love when they have a few shorter ones like this in the second set before they launch into Darkstar. Uh, Dusseldorf Darkstar kicks off the second set. Um, when they have a few shorter ones like this before they launch it's like you know it's coming and you get that nervous energy that you get while you're in line for a huge roller coaster anyhow once we get to dark star billy has some nice cymbal flourishes right off the bat this one soars from the opening notes but oh so gently we're being whisked away into outer space in a limousine that pulled up beside us in an alley in the latin quarter since we're in paris after all just before 2.50, Jerry hits some great bends, which briefly slow things down before launching off. It's like we've been taxiing out to the runway, then the brief pause before taking off. Bob hits some interesting chords just after four minutes, and a conversation between he, Phil, and Keith ensues. This pre-verse has a very patient start to it, in keeping with the entire show up until this point, and really almost the entire show, uh, has a very relaxed, confidence, kind of patient feel to it. Anyhow, this pre-verse sounds like gazing up at the stars as you drift gently by. Jerry hits some Spanish-sounding notes just before 5.30, and things pick up rapidly with Billy offering a propulsive feel with the toms only, 
followed by some distant sounding crashes as it builds. It quickly develops into a full band endeavor, galloping further out like interstellar conquistadors. Phil hits on a cool theme just before 8.30, right as Jerry finds some cool licks. There's a jazzy, almost tiger-teasing run from Jerry just before 9 minutes, made the hair on my chest stand up. That's when you know it really snuck up on you. Jerry hits on an awesome, arpeggiated phrase around 9.30 that the others quickly jump in on. It sounds a bit sinister at first, then turns more hopeful around 10.40. Phil bends some high notes suggesting the Dark Star theme, which Jerry immediately picks up on and latches onto just after 11 minutes, as he and Bob were working up a frenzy going back and forth. Jerry drifts it down to a halt like a leaf coasting to the ground, then picks up into the theme in earnest. We get the first verse at 12.10, which is played very gently and contemplatively, with Billy keeping it jazzy with the ride flourishes. Phil drops some delicate bombs coming out of the verse, if that makes sense, complemented by great controlled feedback and some perfectly erratic toms and ride bell touches from Billy, and the snare with the snares clicked off. Jerry and Bob join the feedback party with some cool stuff. It sounds like our spaceship has come in need of repairs partway through the journey. Some great pick scraping by Bobby starting at 16.30 and lasting for a good minute at least. It wor- he works it up into this awesome harmonic swell with Phil, which spills over into more great feedback. Jerry has some great spacey noodling through here and uh, Keith provides some great atonal clangs at just the right moments. More great feedback at 1845 and again at 1855. Billy becomes more persistent with his toms as the others hold a long, low, sinister hum of feedback. It dissolves into drums at 1922. It's a great drums with the snares clicked off. Billy keeps the crashes soft but active throughout. He clicks the sticks together tastefully towards the beginning and clicks the hi-hat perfectly sporadically with his left foot, dies it down to just cymbals sounding as gong-like as possible at 150, followed by some pitch bending with his elbow or the butt of the stick, and builds to a nice flourish and Phil rejoins at just the right time and it's a pretty short drums at just 2.32. It stays very soft and ethereal as Phil re-enters. He wisely doesn't take off with aggressive, up-tempo stuff like he did during the previous night's version of the other one. Jerry joins basically at the same time as Phil and sounds like an echo from light years away. Phil plays something that sounds very familiar just before two minutes into part two, but I have been unable to put my finger on it, so if any of you figure it out, please let me know. It starts to pick up in intensity a tad around 2.30 in part 2, then a bit more so about 30 seconds later. Jerry rips off a tiger lick out of nowhere at 4 minutes to let us know we've wandered into the wrong asteroid field. Tiger begins in earnest at 4.50, with Billy at first, then Phil and Keith also providing increasingly jumpy, jazzy accompaniment. Billy then has some snappy snare fills around 535. 
and we get a short but sweet and sneakily intense tiger. By 5.45, it starts to head, albeit subtly and gradually, towards more melodic territory, and everyone has entered the fray now. At 7.15, it starts to build quite quickly into a gorgeous jam, like an esoteric, mysterious version of feeling groovy. Jerry has some great bends at 8.50, briefly going into a great fast run, and then back to the bends, all very cascading. Phil tries to flip the switch into feeling groovy during this uh, episode of Jerry's, but they don't take the bait yet. And then Jerry has more of the bends just after 9.30. Phil is then more insistent with feeling groovy around 9.45. Jerry hits on a great low guttural sounding theme just after that and rides it for about a minute. Then at 10.45, Phil and Bobby, who's now joined the cause with him, definitively drive everyone but Jerry into feeling groovy. Jerry continues with his gorgeous, spacey licks, totally in tune and in sync with the others, mind you, for a while longer. The contrast is great and adds a lot of complexity. Some terrific bends from Jerry just after 12.45. Around 13.40, he starts to drift a bit too far into deeper, darker territory for the others to stay in pure feeling groovy jam, so they turn it a bit more sinister to accommodate. He briefly teases a second round of Tiger immediately after, but in the happy-sounding key. Awesome. The whole piece gracefully splinters into fractals around 1520, and at 1524, Jerry reinstates the theme, as he tried to at the end of Dusseldorf, but more decisively this time, and they play the second verse, which was a real rarity from uh, the end of 1970 through 1974, as we, uh, as we discussed in the, uh, in the introduction with that essay about Dark Star's evolution. This is one of three second verses that they played, um, during that span, and uh, and all in 72, the March 23rd Academy of Music, this one, and July 26th in Portland, Oregon, and then uh, basically wasn't uh, played again for a very long time, so uh, it's a real bonus for this one to have the second verse, and uh, it's a very nice one at that to draw it to a close, and as the fractals are glistening with it drifting to a halt, Bob drives them into arguably the best Sugar Magnolia ever, with Jerry doing an awesome little run to join them from where he was with his uh, spacey lick. It sounds like a door creaking open into the glorious sunrise. This Paris Dark Star is one of the prettiest, jazziest versions they ever did. It's every bit as stately, elegant, patient, and exquisite as the previous nights of the other one, which can kind of mask how dark and sinister it really is at certain points. It's like the Dusseldorf version of Dark Star, all dressed up nicely and acting proper in order to lure its prey. 
this one really sneaks up on you. Like the previous nights, the other one, it's very subtle. So if you aren't paying attention and just have it on in the background, you might miss a lot of the magic. But don't be fooled. This is a deep space odyssey, every bit as brilliant and frightening and potentially perilous as any of them. If you think, oh, this is a nice, pretty, jazzy version, it'll be a good one to put on for some contraband experience, think again. It will take your head for a ride, there's no doubt about that. I think in some ways it can actually be spookier because it's the version you least expect it from, and it happens when you least expect it, so it catches you off guard. You know, if you go into one knowing, oh yeah, this one's the really intense, crazy version and it'll give us a good ride, you're waiting for it, you're ready for it. This one, it's kind of sweet and unassuming and you think, oh yeah, it's the nice, pretty jazz club kind of version. And then all of a sudden you're like, oh my God. Having said all of that, it concludes with a good five minutes of some blissful and gorgeous jamming, which still retains an air of mystery remarkably. And as I said, this one gets big bonus points for having the second verse. I certainly appreciate the complex and magical transitions that the absence of the second verse enabled, but I think when push comes to shove, I would rather have it. Some of my favorite lines of the song are in the second verse, particularly the second couplet, glass hand dissolving in ice petal flowers revolving is one of the most brilliant lines, I think. And I like having the sense of closure and completion that the second verse brings. As Spencer said in the episode about the February 13th, 1970 Dark Star, without it landing the spaceship, uh, those are my words, for it, without the second verse bringing that landing of the spaceship, you're just left drifting endlessly through space. Are all of these subsequent songs taking place on some other planet or in some other galaxy or alternate universe? Who's to say? It also helps that this dark star flows into arguably the greatest Sugar Magnolia ever. The studio overdubbed vocals do give it a bit of an unfair advantage, but the slightly more restrained tempo leads to a very careful, quote-unquote, perfect version. Sure, there are ones with more impressive solos from Jerry or that are more explosive in certain areas, but this one is just so clean and precise, and Jerry's solo is very well thought out and has an incredible climax. And, and this uh, Dark Star and the Jam Suite as a whole forms the centerpiece of one of the best second sets ever, not just for this tour. So anyhow, this Paris version, really spectacular, elegant, complex, great chemistry, incredibly tough call between it and Dusseldorf. I ultimately gave the tiebreaker um, because of the presence of the second verse here on this Paris one, which I will admit was a bit of a cop-out. It gave me a chance to not have to dig deeper with my reasoning for why I was choosing it because, frankly, they're basically a tie in my mind and scratch fairly different itches. You know, it's not, Dark Star isn't a song like, you know, um, what's a good example? Casey Jones. 
Casey Jones scratches that one particular itch every time, and it doesn't really matter which version you pick, it's going to scratch that itch to some degree. Darkstar, on the other hand, yes, it has a particular sort of itch compared to other songs, but there's a wide degree of variance within Darkstar where you can think, oh, I want a more soothing melodic version, or I want a really crazy far out one, or I want a jazzy one, or I want a more primal one, all these different colors on the spectrum, and Paris and Dusseldorf, in my mind, are basically equally great versions of their particular color on the spectrum. I just gave the tiebreaker to Paris because of the second verse. And at number one, could it really have been any other version? I have May 11th, Rotterdam, Europe 72, Volume 15. This one is currently ranked 10th on headyversion.com, which is second highest of these Europe 72 versions. Rotterdam's jam suite is Dark Star, Drums, Dark Star, Sugar Magnolia, Caution, Truckin', Uncle John's band, all that clocks in at 87 minutes 54 seconds. Dark Star Drums Dark Star comes in at 48 minutes 2 seconds, which is the longest Dark Star ever. And even if you take drums out, the two pieces of Dark Star come in at 44.14, which is still the longest version ever, longer than that Cleveland 73 version. And obviously, then, the longest of this tour, and the longest epic in general. Uh, as a matter of fact, Dark Star, even without drums, is longer than any of the other Dark Stars or other ones from this tour with their songs that are stuffed in the middle. And Rotterdam's Jam Suite as a whole is not only the longest of the Dark Star shows by over 20 minutes, but is the longest of the entire tour, longer than second place May 26th of London, the final night of the tour, by a whopping 17 minutes 30 seconds. It's also almost 32 minutes longer than the tour average for Jam Suites of 5610. Rotterdam is the third longest complete show at 3 hours 49 minutes, so it actually has a plus 2 ratio with the Jam Suite ranking 2 spots higher than you would expect based on the full show length. And not surprisingly, with its Jam Suite being far and away the longest of the tour, it comprises 38.43% of the complete show, which is the second highest percentage of the tour, trailing only the April 21st Bremen show, which, uh, as we detailed last episode, is an anomaly being such a short show overall at an hour and 20 minutes or so uh, for a TV special. 
This one has the same effect that I just described with respect to the Paris Dark Star as far as having a few shorter songs at the beginning of the second set before they launch into Dark Star. And with this one, I start to get nervous as they go through the short songs leading up to it because I know what an epic journey is coming. It's like you're inching closer and closer to the edge of a cliff or to a black hole. The pace of the intro riff is perfect. You know you're in for an epic journey. Great entrance by everyone. Jerry is armed with a great little motif right out of the gate. He then takes flight at 50 seconds. It sounds like we're setting off into a dense fog, the mist rapidly spiraling around us as we accelerate into the ether. There's a great bend into some feedback from Jerry at 1.30. This one gets very far out very quickly. It dies down a bit at 2.45. Phil mostly plays subdued little mini-bombs for the first 3.30 or so before becoming more aggressive. Billy is mostly cymbal touches and rolling toms through here. Jerry hits on a fantastic staccato riff at 4.30 that everyone jumps in on practically as he hits it. Bob adds some great slashing chords. It rapidly builds in intensity until 5 minutes before exploding into wide open space. It's like we've finally broken through the stratosphere. At 5.30, it's as if you can distinctly hear Jerry looking at the fork in the road between the usual trajectory through outer space and the as-yet-untraveled, surely more perilous way, off into the unknown, the dark side of the galaxy, where none have dared to voyage before. And he chooses the latter. Keith goes atonal just before six minutes, while Jerry is dancing loosely around the Dark Star theme. Billy comes back with the rolling toms shortly thereafter, then initiates a jumpy ride pattern at 6.30. This too dies down, though, with Jerry and Phil introducing an ethereal, melancholic passage that everyone jumps in on right away. Jerry hits on a gorgeous, lush riff at 7.30, then plays with it more loosely for a minute or so. Great cymbal work from Billy starting just before 8 minutes. Phil introduces a great riff, building off of that at 8.15 or so. Keith and Billy are doing some great, jazzy stuff at the same time. Bob is the invisible glue, bobbing and weaving between it all, keeping them together and adding thickness and invisible, subliminal interest, although he pops out with some great chord work around nine minutes. Jerry spins some great thematic webs just after this. Jerry hits on his next great riff just before ten minutes, this time a spiraling, arpeggiated phrase that greatly accelerates our racing into the far reaches of the galaxy. Phil jumps on board with him, while Bob, Keith, and Billy dig deeper and deeper into an insatiable jazz groove. Jerry puts his riff through some very cool permutations, starting just before 12 minutes and continuing for about 30 seconds. It's amazing how hints of his banjo roots could show up in his phrasing a decade later on another continent, a million light years away in the headiest dark star of all time. Obviously intergalactic banjo playing. He then works in a caution tease just before 1230 
and the spaceship spirals rapidly off course in the best way. He does a great wispy incandescent run just after 13 minutes, like a shooting star spiraling off on a never-ending flight. Billy clicks the snares off at 13.30 and begins to push it into drums. Phil suggests the theme about 10 seconds later to no avail, and we shortly thereafter slip into drums, which lasts 3 minutes 49 seconds. It starts very tribal and gives a very unsettled feeling, which is perfect for this dark star. Billy's second floor tom is so low it almost sounds like he's hitting the bass drum with the stick. I know he's not, but that's the effect. He does some great stuff on the snare with the snares flipped off during the middle of drums, and the snares remain off until two minutes, at which point it begins to accelerate into jazzier territory. He does some great call-and-response type interplay between the snare and the toms, and he does a cool roll with his left on the snare and his right hand on the floor tom, followed by some awesome fills all the way around the kit to the big second floor tom in the final minute of drums. Phil somehow jumps right into the gap of a tom pattern that Billy has going, and we're back on the journey. Billy has an incredibly tasty fill 30 seconds into part two. Phil and Billy take their time establishing their jazzy groove, kind of tossing ideas back and forth to each other to see which one they like best, all of which are awesome. Great touch on the bell of the ride by Billy at 1.30. Phil does some cool bends at 1.45. And then Billy has some cool accented snare rolls right after that. Jerry re-enters to a cheer at 155 with some soft, spacey noodling as Phil and Bill are still winding their way to a start. Billy has some great stuff on the ride, then the hi-hat about uh, three minutes into part two, while Jerry and Phil build the intensity. It starts to turn sinister around 330 it's almost like the detour into drums was encountering an asteroid field along the journey, and now we're starting to throttle up again. Phil plays a great menacing groove just before four minutes, and Billy is now riding the ride in the rim of the snare for a bit, starting around four minutes. Jerry teases Cosmic Charlie at 4.15, and then has a great siren-like lick around 4.45, at which point Keith re-enters. Jerry reinstates the theme just after five minutes, and Bob is back in. And then we get the first verse at 5.30 in part two. Jerry really embellishes the word reason, and it's an excellently sung and played verse. Jerry manages to sprinkle in just a pinch of the world weariness that his voice would later acquire, which uh, lends a really nice touch to this dark star. Uh, sort of gives it a hopeless and forlorn feeling to uh, give a little nod to Bob Dylan's Shelter from the Storm, which uh, everyone would be asking for after this dark star. And Jerry's licks accompanying the vocals during the verse are perfect as well. He has some great swells of feedback coming out of the verse. What the others are doing sounds like a million icicles softly shattering all around, like the verse was taking place in some ice castle that we found on a planet along the way, 
and it all fell to pieces in an instant, revealing that we're 2,000 light years from home. There's a very spooky space passage thereafter, starting at 7.30, with Phil dropping some very deep bombs, and uh, Jerry and Bill sounding like they're sneaking up on you in the dark. Pigpen whooshes in at 8.30. Jerry has a great arresting bend around 9.15, prompting Phil to initiate a deep space jazzy phrase. It's slow, but is like a continual prodding to wander out a little deeper. Some great purposeful meandering deeper and deeper into the abyss thereafter. Then we get some great haunted plucking from Jerry as it all dies down and becomes more obviously atonal just before 12 minutes. Bob, Phil, Keith, and Jerry are all doing a great job dancing around each other as they draw closer and closer to the bottom of the black hole, like they're hiding from each other in some cave deep in outer space. Jerry reveals that he's been drawing us towards Tiger at 13.30, and he really starts to step on it with the tiger licks just after 14 minutes, and Bob, Phil, and Keith match him with tigerish stuff of their own. It builds to an incredibly intense climax just before 15 minutes. Then Jerry does that thing where he gets the tiger licks to sound like some evil creature is laughing at you. Phil's bombs and Bob's feedback become more intense. Keith underscores Jerry's demented tiger licks slash shredding, which have another swell of intensity around 16 minutes. They keep this going for a few frighteningly fascinating minutes. It's possibly the scariest tiger section of the tour. I know I've said that a few times between this Dusseldorf Dark Star and Frankfurt other one in that regard. This one is long in sync and intense, an absolute face melter, mind bender, mind shatterer even. Phil starts to initiate a groove that's still just as creepy as his bombs at 17.30, and Billy emphatically jumps in. Jerry, Bob, and Keith keep going with the tigerish stuff as Phil and Bill ascend rapidly out of the black hole at 18 minutes. Jerry has some great licks through here. Phil is playing very high on the neck. It sounds like he's reprogramming the ship. Suddenly at 19.30, we have triumphantly emerged from the abyss into an exuberant mind-left-body type jam with Pigpen joining in. It's like Tiger was a slingshot, pulling us to the deepest, darkest corner of space and then launching us back towards Earth on the other side. Phil teases Birdsong at 20.30, Pigpen teases caution at 21 minutes, which Jerry and Billy pick up on and join him. Phil almost sounds like he's going to go into a solo just after 22.30. Bob seems to tease playing in the band starting around 23 minutes, which Phil picks up on and incorporates very subtly into his solo-esque lead bass playing. And then Jerry joins their subtle hints at playing in the band at 23.45 with some great ethereal play-in-esque noodling. And he even includes what almost sounds like a tease of A Love Supreme by John Coltrane uh, very briefly around 24.10. There's great 
Keith Jerry chemistry around 25 minutes. Jerry almost sounds like he's teasing Eyes of the World very briefly around 2530, which of course wouldn't come out until the following year, then quickly turns it into a more insistent caution tease. Basically a full-blown caution-type jam for 30 seconds or so, and then sort of a caution playing in the band hybrid at 2620, which dissolves at 2650 with more caution licks from Jerry, Bob, and Phil. And then we get more Cosmic Charlie teases from Jerry and Phil just after 2730. Another bird song tease from Phil at 28 minutes and 2815. And some rapturous organ work from Pigpen through here. Then just after 2830, Jerry very briefly touches on the type of post-caution feedback that he would play right before they slipped into We Bid You Goodnight in earlier years. And then we get a beautiful Jerry, Phil, and Pigpen, and then Bob as well, sort of ethereal group noodling as it glides very gradually and peacefully back to Earth. It sounds like arriving at the end of time as we know it. And Pigpen plays a swirling, gentle, siren-like organ phrase that sounds like an ambulance calmly coming to get us after landing our spaceship softly in a field somewhere. Or it could sound like waking up from a dream to find yourself on a placid beach somewhere, whatever you like to picture. And then Bob steers them smoothly and emphatically into an epic sugar magnolia at just the right moment, which Jerry adds a slick little pick scrape to. This dark star is absolutely stunning. Not only the longest ever, but undoubtedly the most complex as well. Contrary to what you might expect from a 48-minute version, it's actually one of the most focused and energetic. Some accuse it of directionless meandering, which I think is totally false. Any one segment has an incredible sense of direction and purpose. The compass is just constantly shifting. If you want a dark star with maximum twists and turns along the journey, this one is for you. It teases multiple different songs along the way. Birdsong, Caution, Cosmic Charlie, Playing in the Band, Truckin', perhaps even Eyes of the World and A Love Supreme. The teases are all very well integrated, though. It doesn't sound gimmicky at all. From the spaceship setting off in the foggy night to landing smoothly again in a grassy meadow, we journey through many different galaxies on the way to the black hole and back again on this one. Along the journey of the spectacular pre-drums, pre-verse, you're whisked through lush forests and across glistening oceans before finally being launched out of a psychedelic cannon and into outer space. I literally had my entire life's movie flash before my eyes in an instant while listening to this in the car driving over the Skyway Bridge. Not in an I-almost-crashed sort of way, just all of a sudden it just like a flood of mental movies. I watched the replay of my whole life. It was pretty surreal. 
this one is not for the faint of heart at all. It is most definitely deep end Grateful Dead. As I said, I actually get nervous as the songs that precede it in the second set progress, like I'm being sucked closer and closer to the black hole. Oddly enough, though, it was able to convert uh, two of my friends in the Discord uh, groups that I'm in uh, who were Zeppelin fans but hadn't got into the dead yet. Uh, it was able to get them on the bus and make them deadheads. So uh, shout out to Eric and Alex for that. And they reported out-of-body experiences while listening to it and were unsure if they could take it but loved every second of it. It also flows into one of the longest Sugar Magnolias of the tour at 7.33. While a bit rougher vocally than some others on the tour, it's an explosive and creative version. Jerry's solo is fantastic and unique, and they all go crazy underneath him. And then Sugar Magnolia flows into an incredible 16 minute 34 second version of Caution, its final performance ever and it has a bit of who do you love in it. And then Caution flows into a blistering truckin', which then flows into a sublime Uncle John's band, and they encore with One More Saturday Night, which was left off the official release for some reason, but you can find it on the soundboard, and it's great. So this Dark Star is the best and longest by... I think a significant margin in the best and longest jam suite of the tour and one of the best jam suites of all time within one of the best second sets ever within one of the best shows ever and what I think is the best show of the tour. It's probably between Rotterdam and February 13th, 1970, Fillmore East for my all-time favorite show, depending on the sort of mood I'm in. So yeah, Rotterdam Dark Star, I really can't say enough about it. It's quite a journey. It's something I think everybody has to experience for themselves, and multiple times at that, I still get something new out of it every single time. It's incredibly intense and powerful, obviously the longest ever. It's very complex. And I think at various points across its 48 minutes, it does everything that other versions do, uh, which is one of the reasons why it's one of, if not the best, I think 21370 is the best for kind of personal reasons. I, I do have some logical ones, but anyhow, um, yeah, at various points, Rotterdam does everything that any other given version does for its entirety. You know what I mean? It has the jazziness of the Paris version. It has the intensity of the Dusseldorf version. It has the energy of the April 8th London version. It has the mind-bending, crazy psychedelia of Veneta. It has the euphoric jamming towards the end of Philly and the April 8th London one, like we said. It has some of those really quiet sections and the great chemistry like February 13th, 70. So uh, yeah, this Dark Star really has it all. Um, on the intensity front, one time 
I literally felt the G-forces driving me back into my chair listening to this one. May or may not have been enhancements at play. But I also had that watching my life's movie experience stone cold sober driving down the highway. So this version can uh, completely overpower even the most seasoned of deadheads, which I would not consider myself. There are many who have been on the bus a lot longer than me, but no matter how long you've been listening to the Grateful Dead or Europe 72 or even this version of Dark Star, it still has the power to knock you on your ass, quite frankly, and it's best to just lie down and soak it in for the whole 48 minutes because it really will take you on a journey, you know? It's like there and back again, A Hobbit's Tale by Bilbo Baggins or, you know, even more epic, we'll say it's Lord of the Rings, you know, it starts off your Frodo and Sam in the Shire and then quickly you have to leave on this long and perilous journey and by the time you get back, you can never quite be the same. You know, that smooth landing of the spaceship in the grassy meadow at the end, it reminds me of the Queen song 39, how the the guy comes back from space exploration and the world's changed so much because he's been gone so long. Okay, so at this point in the proceedings, I am going to turn it over to my conversation with Spencer where he gave me his ranking of these versions. And speaking of Spence, that Dark Star sample was created by him and all of the drum samples are created by me. So uh, no worries here, we're not stealing anything. And again, I apologize for how long I can tell this episode is going to be uh, I hope you'll find it's worth it. If any song should have a long episode, it's Dark Star, right? Okay, it's a great pleasure to welcome back to the show my brother Spencer Cropper. He joined us last week to rank the Europe 72 versions of the other one, and he's back again to do the same for Dark Star today. So welcome back, bro. Hey, thanks for having me back on. I'm excited to dig into this one. Of course. So uh, I know we gave kind of your general thoughts about how the journey went last week, uh, and you were saying you... um, enjoyed it more than maybe you expected to and also got a little burnt out partway through the tour. Um, yeah, it was, you know, it was kind of like, um, you know, positive side, negative side, positive side is I feel, uh, more strongly about being a grateful dead fan after attempting to listen to this whole tour. 
But the downside is like about halfway through, I kind of got bored of it, couldn't keep up with it. And it's not because I don't enjoy it. It was just like, I'm not hearing enough difference that it's keeping me interested. And we were talking about how it's kind of a muscle, right? And you say you've been developing it for such a long time. And it's true. Zach listens to way more music than most people could could bear, uh, myself included. And it's like really a respectable thing um, that you can listen to stuff in such detail and not get bored so quickly, right? Like for me, it can be three minutes in and I'm just like, I'm out. I got to find something new. Um, and it's like, I'm always wanting to hear new things. Whereas you'll digest something that's a bit bigger like this, like dark star. Mm -hmm. Well, thanks. I appreciate you appreciating the craft. Um, I always say, you know, all 16 personality types are equally necessary in the social ecosystem. You know, we all bring different strengths and weaknesses to the table. Um, yeah, and it's funny that you mentioned that because in previous talks about the Grateful Dead, um, we've talked about how their music can be quite intellectual. Um, that's how the audience is actually connecting to it. Dark Star obviously being one of the bigger points of discussion when it comes to this. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think it uh, it fits primarily actually in the the sort of spiritual intuition axis to me um it because i find it the most reliable song if i'm having trouble getting into my introverted intuition being my dominant function as an intj if i'm having trouble getting into that because it's the polar opposite of the tangible sensory world so it's you can very easily be thrown off course by any distractions um and I find Dark Star, Dark Star fantastic for sucking me in and then shooting me out into into space. It's like the the opening riff kind of catches you and sucks you in and then blasts you off into whatever you need to daydream about. Yeah, it's such a, a great way to launch a song, the way it comes in, so soft, so delicate. And you get a little bit of variety with it. It's the notes are so important. It's like that theme is such a grounding moment for the song. So they can't really toy around with that. It's, it's the whole rest of the song. And you're talking about, you know, sometimes 20, 25 minutes where they're going on in this kind of endless void of a progression. You don't really know where it's going. And so such an interesting thing is how they go into that and how they come out of it. And you can get some difference um, on a night to night basis. Like if you're somebody that's going to sit down and listen to an entire tour like this, you need to be doing it with a band that's giving you some variety so that you're not going to be bored after two or three shows. And they're certainly doing it, uh, you know, during this part of the tour. Um, what, what were kind of your highlights? Um amongst the versions of dark star yeah like like which which one in particular resonates with you as like ah oh, that's the dark star from this or or which couple ones uh i'm not i'll show you yours if you show me mine <laughs> let's you give us your ranking first and then <laughs> uh paris this is going top to bottom yeah yeah okay paris okay. rotterdam may 25th london show April 17th, Copenhagen, Dusseldorf, April 8th, London, April 14th, Copenhagen, Hamburg, May 23rd, London, Bickershaw, Munich. 
Okay. Uh, mine is Rotterdam, Paris, Dusseldorf, April 8th, London, May 25th, London. I have Hamburg and Munich in like a virtual tie. Um, I'll give the the coin flip to Munich, I think. Uh, I can explain why in a, in a sec. Um, and then April 14th, Copenhagen, April 17th, Copenhagen, Bickershaw, May 23rd, London. So much more similar than our other one rankings, which were almost the complete opposite. Yeah, definitely more in line. So let's go from the top to bottom. So your top was? Rotterdam. And that was second for me, Paris first for me. Why is Rotterdam get the edge? Um, I Probably just because it's the... I mean, it's the longest version ever, but I sometimes longest doesn't necessarily equate to best, but I feel like in this case, it's actually one of the more intense and energetic ones, even with being the longest. And it's just incredibly complex. And uh, I felt like it, it did everything that other dark stars do. Like they might do one thing, say one has an aquatic feel, one has a woodsy feel, one has a jazzy feel, one has an outer space feel. <clears throat> it felt like Rotterdam had those all at, not just had them all at some point, but even had them all at once, remarkably. What so it's you- kind of like a, a blend of everything for you. Um, and that's like understandable. And we were talking uh, just a second ago about how, for me, like the other one, I didn't really think it needed to be 30 minutes or 35 minutes in some cases. Like I was enjoying it with 20 minutes and was kind of feeling like they were oversharing um, by the end of some of those, which is why our rankings were so drastically different. Whereas with this one, I was telling you, like, I understand why this is such a monstrous song. Like I understand why they allow it to develop for this long. And it's one of the rare instances where a song goes on for 30 or 40 minutes live and I'm not bothered by it and I can understand it. Um, You know, that being said, it wasn't being played every night. And I think it's important that they were switching between these kind of epic ones. Like I can't imagine seeing that all in one night. It would almost be too much. Mm -hmm. Um, but Paris, uh, another thing, I really liked the, uh, the artwork on it. And we were talking about that last week, how that affects it. There was something about the Paris show that I just really liked altogether. Um, I remember listening to it and being like, wow, this is really cool. At the time of listening it, um, you know, I was asking you, oh, what makes this one special? Cause I was listening to it and immediately hearing something where I was like, this is clicking for me. <clears throat> yeah. That, that Paris one is one of the jazziest they ever did. And I found it kind of uh, sneakily intense. Like you, um, you would think that it's, you know, it's this elegant jazzy version and it's not going to be too intense if you listen to it, um, you know, enhanced in some way or whatever. And it's, uh, there's much more there than meets the eye in that department. It It's quite a journey. Um, I also love that it has the second verse, which it, it's the only one of these that has that. And uh, 
one of only three that has it um, in 72. And like they only did it the second verse like four times from the end of 1970 until they brought it back in 1989. It's fascinating how um, big of a difference it, it makes and how you can be like, for me, it makes a really big difference. It feels like a return. It feels like a, um, uh, you know, it has a definitive opening and definitive ending to me. And that's really important because it allows me to contextualize all the different parts. And like how you were saying how the Paris version is jazzier, that made me feel like it was an underwater kind of feel where it was like soft blues, um, you know, eerie in the way that it's like you can't see everything that's going on. Kind of like if you're looking into water, it would be mm. the same. Okay, that's interesting. I, the one that gave me the strong <clears throat> underwater feel was Munich. It felt and, like you you start off like kind of sailing above the water and then you plunge under and end up in the tiger section. I, I said in my notes, this one should be called Tiger Shark. Uh, you're like, <clears throat> you know, at the very bottom of the ocean, and then how it kind of frantically races back to the surface before going into morning dew it sounded to me like um you know when you're trying to you're about to run out of air so you're racing back to the surface and like not sure if you're going to make it and then it kind of like dissolves into nothing for a second before morning dew starts and it sounded like you know you shoot through this it's like oh did i shoot through to the surface and i make it or did i just die Right. Like it's, it's so fast getting back to it. Maybe that's why I missed all of that because Munich is at the very bottom of my list. Yeah. That's funny. Funny how ones that you are saying you find somewhat similar in that, um, or at least how I feel about Paris is how you feel about Munich. And I love Paris and have Munich at the very bottom. So I put a star next to it and I'll re-listen to it and see if I completely missed the, you know, the ball there. (laughs) Um, what about uh, Dusseldorf? We don't, we're not too different on that front, but I had it three and you had it five and I, I had it really close with it in Paris. What ultimately tipped the scales in favor of Paris was the second verse. Um, yeah. So Dusseldorf. Okay. What is it to you? What kind of feel woodsy water? Um, no odor space. And I would say it's the most intense. I, I I think I would agree with you. Like part of the reason that it's kind of fifth for me is I can understand that it's like really, really powerful, but it's a bit too much for me. Like I don't necessarily want it to be that aggressive. It really is like just kind of shocking. Like it's, it's like if you woke up in space and you're just like, what? And there's nobody to explain to you what's going on. You're just like, where am I? Yeah. Like that one is, probably as aggressive a dark star as i've ever heard um and oddly enough the me and my uncle inclusion just dropped in the middle like works perfectly like this detour into like some cowboy scene going on on another planet while you're cruising through space um and how often did they actually work that song in uh 
Not very often. It was <clears throat> much more common for uh, stuff to be woven into the other one, I think. And even on this tour, you can see that it's only the top three versions lengthwise uh, Rotterdam, Dusseldorf, and Paris that have anything dropped in the middle, even drums. Um, they always seemed to kind of respect Dark Star a little more, at least to my eyes, uh, with how they treated the two of them, as far as, you know, it viewing it more as a sacrosanct thing that they didn't really tamper with. It's like, okay, if we're going to play it, we're going to play it right, and it's going to take the requisite amount of time and when it ended up being retired by and large for 15 years after 74 it was that coincides with when the other one had a big drop off in length they kept playing it but it would be you know 10-15 minutes most nights and it's almost like they said okay if we're deciding that we're not going to do these 30 minute space journeys every night um we'd rather just retire dark star than bastardize it. Right. Whereas with the other one, they, they found a way to make it, you know, a smaller chunk of the show. Um, I, I think that that, you know, brings us right back to that. I feel it's really important for dark star that it's long, you know, it's, it's kind of like, like what's the longest Lord of the Rings movie. It's like three and a half hours. The extended yeah, cut. The, the extended cut might be four. It's over four. So, like to me, I'm just like Dark Star is is that, but even more dramatic of songs. Yeah. Like most songs should be two to three minutes. You know, then you've got like a group that are like around five, and then you get up to like seven or eight, and that's kind of the max for most people. And then there are these other like jam bands, right? Can just go on for so much longer. So you know when you're around like the 20 minute mark it's like now you're really getting out there and you might even be losing people that are into jamming um but this is a really rare instance where i think it makes sense that they play it for 30 minutes on end it's like that's how long the song is it's not like they're extending some idea that's smaller yeah now why do you think it works that way because you know structurally it's a fairly nebulous song um and then you you know you could compare it to something like dazed and confused on the zeppelin side of things where they added new structural pieces as the sort of built it like lego and there's a bit of that in dark star it's much more subtle um why do you think you you would think with something that's such a nebulous structure extending it to that degree might just make it sound aimless and wandering. Why do you think it works for Darkstar? It's kind of like the ploy. It's it's in the title, Darkstar, is that it's supposed to feel that way where it's like wandering and you're lost. Whereas with other things, I'm not really getting that the length is connected to the very basis of the song. Whereas with Darkstar, like, it, it's like a star to a plant is much larger right like there's something about it being called dark star that when you listen to it it connects perfectly and i'm just kind of like it's this massive entity of a song um it doesn't feel like it's being done just to be 
extravagant, you know, really extravagant or, or to, to show off your abilities even because it's not about like technical playing. It's like, they're making very creative, um, concise decisions with the notes they're picking. And, uh, the, the thing is that the harmony harmony in this song can be aimless at sometimes. It's that- like, it can just kind of drift you know, away from something and back to it at some point. And it might take two minutes or it might take four, you know, it can be very different. Um, but yet you get a relatively similar feeling no matter what notes they pick. That kind of brings me to, uh, comparing dark star and the other one in some senses, structurally, as far as the sections of the song, they're pretty similar in that they have, an opening riff or theme of some sorts and then sort of a pre-verse section where it's thematic jamming and then a first verse and then goes a bit further out into space more jamming and then uh, comes back around to the second verse and then either stops or goes into something else in the case of dark star by this point they had mostly stopped doing the second verse but um even though they're as far as the sections of the song, they're pretty similar structurally. Um, how do they differ in other aspects? Um, Oh, it's so they're so fundamentally different. Um, the way that the other one starts, it's way more upbeat. It's way more aggressive in your face. Um, and I think that's, you know, a big reason why I'm like, I don't need this for 30 minutes. It's like, it's really loud. It's making sure you're hearing everything, you know, really loudly and clearly. And whereas dark star, there's all these things going on where it's like, is somebody playing? Like, am I hearing that? Is, am I not? Um, it's so much about the blend of it. And the way that it starts is really soft. Just the, da right and it's got that um it's called a guiro guiro yeah right and it's like it's that kind of scrapey noise it's the instrument that everybody played at some point in like elementary music class and everybody thought like who uses this uh but we were talking about how when it's in a song i'm always thinking i'm like how do i get one of those like i love that sound i I want that in more things Mm-hmm. no i agree um i also find it's like dark star is expansive it sounds like opening up into you know you shoot through the stratosphere and now outer space opens up before your eyes whereas the other one is kind of constrictive it sounds like collapsing in on something collapsing in on itself it's like dark star sounds like exploring outer space and the other one sounds like drilling to the earth's core. Yeah, I definitely think it's uh, that outward inward thing. Dark star is expansive and it's like taking you far, far away. And the other one is kind of driving you home. You're almost like a turtle going into its shell. Oh, that's an interesting way to look at it. Um, I also, I find that with the other one, it's, it's theme seems to have more gravitational pull on the jams. 
like they seem to always get sucked back into the like no matter what's happening it kind of continually sucks them back um whereas the other one or whereas dark star seems to lend itself to just more and more wandering and it's like every time you unfold it opens up a new thing you can unfold um and it made me think of a comment i saw in reference to Mick Taylor playing with the stones in 2013 and 2014. And the person said it was kind of unfair how they only let him play on midnight rambler because it didn't give him the best chance to show off his creativity, having a narrower melodic arc to play with. And it sounds to my drummer ears, like that's the case here where dark star has a much wider melodic arc to explore than the other one. Is that true? Yeah, it's far less definitive in the in the harmony. Like when you have a riff like in the other one that's going on and it's kind of like this train engine that just keeps on chugging. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it doesn't leave you a whole lot of room to play with even though like say you're Jerry and you're soloing over it. Theoretically, you can make any note work, but there's just some that are a lot harder to do and the busier the music underneath the solo is the less kind of wiggle room you have. They just start to sound like wrong notes at that point. And so like, as like a showcase piece, your playing might be technically more uh, difficult on the other one per se, but the thought going into it doesn't have anywhere near as much room to, to expand and to explore new ideas. Whereas with dark star, it's a slow and spacey kind of thing. So you're, you know, never doing something that's like too crazy technically, but the thought you have to put into it, right? Like the one note difference you might make is causing the whole rest of the band to like kind of shift and sway into this new dimension. And, you know, that needs to be very deliberate to make it sound worthwhile. Otherwise it just sounds like, you know, guys messing around on stage. Mm Mm-hmm. So how much of you, how much of that do you think is owing to who it is playing it? Like how uh, it seems to me like some uh, random band attempting to cover a 20 or 30 minute dark star, it could go off the rails pretty far, really fast. Like how, how difficult is it for musicians other than these guys to replicate this kind of thing? Oh, uh, I mean, it's, yeah, it's, it's really difficult. Like the fact that dead and company even plays stuff like this blows me away. And that's even with like guys that were in the band that can explain it because you're like, like mayor wasn't even alive when they're playing the early versions of dark star. Um, and now he's playing it. And so, I mean, it takes musicians of that caliber that can like learn stuff like that. But I mean, we tried to play dark star once, uh, way back in the day much to my chagrin yeah <laughs> because i right for me i was like i was like there's it's so much to comb over just to get an idea of what's going on you don't like it would take so much time to sit down with this and be able to make it sound organic maybe you could learn what they're actually doing but to get a whole band to do it and to have chemistry like they did pretty much impossible yeah you were right that we weren't ready to do it 
at least we can say we tried, but <laughs> um, and we well we can say that there's no evidence of it, so nobody could say it was too bad. <laughs> there is on my computer, but that's <laughs> um, yeah, and I think it, it it goes beyond just technical ability as well. It takes musicians of a certain mindset to be comfortable with that degree of ambiguity and you know controlled chaos almost oh i definitely agree and to get like a group of people that are on the same page as you know we've seen and anybody that's played in a band has seen it's just like there there are more arguments or disagreements or like tension uh there's more for every extra member you have it's you know it's that many more relationships where it's like yeah the the guy that you hire to play guitar might get on really well with you but if he hates the bassist it's going to come to a head at some point and not even like thinking of that just on stage in order to like learn something like this you need to have complete like trust in the people you're playing with where you're like i know there's like nothing i can do that's going to make them stop playing and we'll all figure it out because you know the reason we're saying a random band shouldn't like play stuff like this is because at some point they're going to do something that's like totally wrong and it's putting yourself in a stressful situation where you're like lost musically and it's like oh god are we is it so bad that we need to stop and like get back on because it's such a far out kind of thing it's very easy to get lost and to to just be making noise at that point oh yeah like i there were times where i an idea came like, Oh, I'd like to try this, but I'm like, uh, I better not. Cause I'm not a hundred percent sure that everybody's gonna be right there with me. And I don't want to throw the train off the tracks. Um, and it speaks to a, a different time as well. Like the, it was a bit more common in the seventies that, you know, you were jamming with something like this and you knew that like if you did it really well it was going to be rewarding and the whole crowd was going to be you know blown away that you did it whereas now like i think even if you do a big jam thing like this well it's not necessarily guaranteeing the crowd being happy with it they might be like i totally did not get that i I, what was the point of that yeah it really depends um i mean i think that there is kind of a niche market for it still with people who uh, go see fish and go see dead and company. But yes, definitely. If you know, suppose dead and company were playing at a festival with a bunch of other acts and you had fans from all of the other bands, like hearing them before or after who they came to see, they might, you know, come up at the end of dark star and think, what was that? Yeah. And it's, you know, it's definitely a niche thing. And that's like, you know, it's, it's almost funny at that point where it's like, Oh, we're talking about all these different versions of this really long song that like, if you haven't listened to dark star, you're probably just like, what are you even talking about right now? And you'd probably listen to like five different versions and be like, there's no difference. It's just, I don't get it. Yeah. And I I actually don't think it's uh, necessarily the best like initiation into the dead. Because one time, like a few years before I finally got into them, I was like, oh, I should try getting into them. Um, and I somehow like discovered that Dark Star was their most famous like live epic or whatever. So I just searched 
Grateful Dead Dark Star on YouTube and clicked on the first one. It was uh, from later in 72. And it was just too different from anything I'd heard before and I didn't get it. And then it took like a couple of years before I ended up getting on the bus through like Uncle John's band, Sugar Magnolia, Ripple. It definitely, yeah, I, I wouldn't lead with Dark Star ever if you're like trying to get into it because it's just you you kind of have to have a bit of a backstory with the band and know what other stuff they can do to understand um and appreciate like why dark star was kind of special in their repertoire and right like it fans were kind of crazy about it right like they stopped playing it for a long time you say that they referred to it as the one it or as it yeah they uh after 1974 they played it once uh in 78 on new year's eve because it was the closing of winterland and then a couple times in the weeks after that at the beginning of 79 and i think once or twice in 81 once randomly in 84 as an encore at the uh, greek theater in berkeley and then uh, brought it back a bit more regularly starting in 89 um, and for a few years after that but so yeah basically it was retired for 15 years there and yeah fans would be like oh i wonder if they'll play it tonight you know that kind of fascinates me because i i remember the first time listening to this and thinking what is all the fuss about you're telling me there's people out there that are like worshiping this song but now you kind of get it to an extent. Yeah. I mean, it's not my cup of tea, but that's not why I'm listening to it and talking about it with you. I'm trying to see, you know, is there depth or is there artistic merit where it's like, no, this is really cool. And if the grateful dead and jam bands happen to be your thing, then this might really be your thing. Whereas for me, I'm like, well, I still can appreciate how good it is, even though I know this isn't really my thing. And it's almost like a bit of a task to listen to it. It's like, okay, I'm telling myself I'm sitting through it and I'm going to figure out what it's all about. But this isn't something that I'm listening to in like a leisurely way. But that doesn't change the fact that it's really, really good. And if this is the kind of stuff that you can relax to, you'll get very relaxed with this. Mm-hmm. Now, I know you had a bit more experience with Dark Star coming into this exercise than you did with the other one. Uh, we did that episode back in February talking about the uh, February 13th, 1970 version, which is my personal favorite. Um, how to do these Europe 72 versions compare to that one and other dark stars that you've heard for you? Um, I really liked um, like Paris being my top Rotterdam um and that london show that i put up there i mean they're as good as anything i've heard before i I mean the paris one i like it better than any versions i've ever heard so you know i would say that i you know pretty happy listening to these but i was like ah this is um it's better than other versions i've heard and anytime that i'm thinking that as i'm listening i'm like well does that mean there's better ones that i still haven't heard uh, there may be, you're getting pretty close to the top now. Um, what do you think it was about them that made you like these top tier ones from Europe 
better than the 1971 that you heard i think it's maybe that like i was listening to it as a tour and i was appreciating it in a different way because like it's not the same thing but listening to a tour like this it's almost like you're like oh i'm on tour with them you know it's like Mm -hmm. a bit of like you know oh i'm traveling with the the band kind of thing and especially in a time like this where like you can't just go see a show it's kind of like a cool thing to do and it's you know it's an exercise of your imagination but you can really have fun and and uh, appreciate this music differently when you're seeing like you know they they did play different stuff on given nights and even in a set list that for them is like pretty static static it still is very diverse compared to other acts that you might see right i mean they're there are lots of acts and this is not uh, an indictment of them, but they play the same set every night on tour and that it comes down to what you're comfortable with and what the players are capable. And for some reason, the grateful dead, the combination of the players, they're capable of things that like other bands wouldn't even think of. And they probably wouldn't even be interested in trying them. For sure. And like, um, as an example of a band that I love, pretty well as much but are pretty low on uh or at least at this point of their career we're low on both set list and within song improvisation the stones 72 tour which is widely regarded as their best um it's it runs june through july so i've listened to a couple of them already and there's more that i listen to throughout the summer but it's not the same thing as like, I see that, Oh, the Seattle show is today. I got to make sure I listen to that. It's kind of like, it's basically the same 75 minute ride for all 40, however many shows. And like, yeah, there's some where they're okay. They're a bit more on this night, but it's kind of, okay. If that anniversary comes up and I don't have much to listen to that day, I know that it'll be, a fun 75 minutes but i don't feel the need to squeeze in every single one exactly and so you know for anybody that is comp- contemplating should i listen to you know more versions of dark star or, or should i you know listen to to zach's advice and go listen to a whole tour um you know if you think you might be into it this is really the band to try it with um it's it's interesting you know, it's not like seeing the same TV show every night or like the same episode of something. You're getting variety. You're getting a different feeling on given nights. And right, like by the end of it, you might really like one version in particular, but you may not have appreciated it had you not heard the other ones and like been able to pick out, oh, this one's different and I like it because of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you said you picked up a bit of a water you feel from the Paris one. Did any of the others give you a distinct type of vibe? Mm. I felt like there was something very different about the the Copenhagen shows Mm -hmm. from the rest, or particularly the Dark Stars on them. I, I couldn't pinpoint a feeling, though. You know, it was very much, and that's why Paris is at the top of my list, because it's like, it's like, you know, I really feel strongly about this one, and it like, it was very um, obvious to me what the feeling was. And 
nothing else quite resonated that much with me where I could say, ah, oh, it makes me feel exactly like this. And I think that's just why I have Paris at the top. I don't have others that I necessarily thought were like woodsy, but you mentioned that earlier on, like, what were the shows that were making you feel that? Uh, Hamburg felt very foresty to me. It felt like, um, you, uh, say you're on a camping trip with your buddies and you sort of wander off into the woods by yourself as it's getting towards sunset and then you kind of get lost a little and start to get progressively like spooked by you know you start hearing things and seeing things and then just when you're like really freaking out the transition to sugar magnolia comes and it's like stumbling upon your friends sitting at the campfire waiting for you i might have to re-listen to that one as well too because um this is like a, a bit of a story of how I got into the dead. But the first time I heard working men's dead, that's the exact feeling I got that it was almost like this concert, but it was just them sitting by a fire. I had happened to, you know, stumble onto the same beach as them. And, and I was hearing it. And that was the introduction to me where I was like, you know, it's kind of like hanging out with your friends, listening to the dead. You know, it's a very interesting experience. And to, to hear that that's going on in one particular concert, I'm interested to see because that's part of the reason that I really love that album. It's a very specific feeling to me. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned the uh, the Copenhagen ones. I found the second one felt more wintry than the others. Um, kind of like uh, Narnia. Like he, I was picturing like a, an ice castle and it's more chill than the others, but it had kind of a, it still had an enchanting quality, even though it was more subdued. That's interesting. I, you know, it was like, I can see that now that you're saying it. Uh, and, and it's something where I'm like, Oh, maybe I should go re-listen to that one too, because it's like, there are, sometimes the version will kind of direct how you're feeling. But then if you tell me it's wintry, right, I can go listen now and be like, Oh, wintry, wintry and, and see what it is you're talking about and be like, Oh, I think I get what you're saying. Right. Which is exactly why I didn't give you guys any of my thoughts prior to listening. Cause I didn't want to precondition you in that way. Cause you know, if I, I can tell you, Oh, this version of, um, I don't know. What's it? this version of trampled underfoot is really relaxing. Obviously you're going to listen to it be like, Oh, he's full of crap. But yeah. with a song like this, that's so impressionable to your preconceived notions coming in. It can be dangerous to, to be like, Oh, listen to this because, you know, it's just listen to this. Let me know what you think. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and the first Copenhagen, I don't know if I would say I got a, a distinct vibe per se i that one has a really pretty uh pre-verse and probably the fastest feeling groovy jam that i've heard uh after the verse i would have had it a little higher even except um it felt a bit lopsided being 29 minutes and the verse coming 17 minutes in um with that long of a pre-verse i would have liked to have had a bit more uh, bulk after the verse. That's understandable. I think it's it was interesting for me to hear it so much later than normal. Like it's it's what like five minutes later than you would normally get that verse. 
maybe uh, even a bit more. For, for one of that total length, yeah. Um, I mean, the Rotterdam verse comes 23 minutes in, but oh 23, out of four, 23 out of 48, it's all relative. But yeah, like Dusseldorf is like 40 minutes and the first verse is, I think, 11 or 12 minutes in. So yeah. Right. So, you know, at that start, you're not getting a ton of, uh, you know, footholds. Um, and you know, there's so much going on. I can get what you're saying with wanting it to go on longer. Um, of course me always to argue, let's not make it longer. Uh, Mm -hmm. I, I was, I was able to appreciate how I was like, it almost placed a lot more emphasis on what goes on before the verse than what went on after just because of the placement there. And it was interesting. It was almost like, you know, when they release a movie and then they release like a second one, like, you know, Lion King, when they released the third one was like one and a half. Yeah. yeah. Like you're revisiting stuff you've heard before, but now it's focusing on a different part, like a storyline that's showing you the same events, but through a different character's perspective on this time around. It's almost like that to me. Cool. Yeah, I can see that. What sort of listening experience do you associate with Dark Star in general? Nighttime, uh, relaxing. Um, it's like almost like a getting ready for bed thing. Not, but before brushing your teeth. <laughs> <laughs> Why is that? In particular, there. No, it's not the kind of thing to brush your teeth and then go listen to because by that point you're like, I'm ready for bed. You're like, oh, I already right. brushed my it's like you're falling asleep it's like a cool down into that time where you're like okay now i'm you know i'm getting changed brushing my teeth now i'm off the bed but it's like a relaxing thing it's like it can take you from um you know that post dinner like you're not yet yawning feeling like you're gonna fall asleep but you're ready to chill out it's been a long day you've got what's done good job turning on the dark star you kind of relax by the end of it you're like wow that was heavy that was like really a lot to digest and it's like finishing an album and then you're like, I'm done. I'm going to bed now for me. I, I don't listen to more of the show after dark star in one sitting like dark star ends. And I'm like, that's it. Oh, that's interesting. Um, yeah, I think overall I would, I'd have to agree with you. There are some versions that like we were talking about on the, that last dark star episode about how they, it, more than other songs really takes on the character of the city and the venue it's being played in. Um, the one from Veneta, Oregon later in 72, that was out in the, the field on a hot summer day and sort of started at dusk. It really takes on that sunset on a hot summer day type of feel. But yeah, overall I would agree with you. You know, and that's like, it gives you a bit of a feeling like for the whole tour, you can get kind of the overarching like vibe of dark star, but then each different version can have very different things for you. One of the things we both agreed on completely was having Bickershaw second from the bottom. What was your reasoning for that? I know mine was just the fact that it was cut off after the first verse and gave way to the other one via drums. Uh, but it, I, I felt it was on pace to be 
one of the better ones with how good the previous was. Yeah, just kind of disappointing in that terms. Like you don't really get a feel for the story when it cuts off like that. So like, it's not that it was like bad playing while it was going on, but I was just like, ah, that fell short. Mm. And we were also both pretty low on the May 23rd London one. I had it dead last and you had it third from the bottom. Um, what was what was your reasoning for having it low? It really, well, I, I was comparing like the London shows to each other and like that one stuck out to me as the worst of the three. Um, and because of that, like, you know, as I was listening back to these versions, I just didn't think that like, yeah, there were some good moments during the overall show, but I wouldn't like for that particular show, I wouldn't be saying, Oh, dark star was like one of the high points, you know, for that one, there were other moments where I was like, yeah, they're hitting their stride here. But in general, it was like, there were things off that were normally on like in dark star. Um, you know, it didn't feel quite as out there as a lot of the versions. Um, not that the playing was bad, but it's just like when you've heard these other versions that are kind of epic in comparison, you know, you start to think, ah, that's not really top five, not top six, seven, you know, it's down at the bottom end for the tour overall. Yeah. I, I would have to agree with you. It, it was actually the only one of the tour that I didn't really enjoy. Um, and it was kind of an interesting experiment for me and, how much your mood going into the listen affects things because with that one i was listening in like the prime state to really enjoy it i you know wasn't stressed about anything and had a good productive day and put it on as i was going for a nice walk and the weather was good and everything and the playing was all technically sound it just didn't seem to to come together and give me any um specific vibe or feel or usually i i like having a narrative to sort of latch onto and frame it through as i go and usually i don't have to force it it just kind of gives it to me with what we've talked about how they each have kind of particular feels but that one just wasn't really giving me any narrative to follow um and then conversely the may 25th one when I listened to it, everything was going wrong to like end up not liking it. I was like kind of ticked off and like it was a hectic day around the house and everything. And I like sort of like hid away in my room. I was like, oh, okay, fine. I have 30 minutes to listen to it. And yet I loved it. So that was cool to know that my variables are more controlled than I thought. Cause sometimes you get nervous. Like, oh, is this just totally being affected by my mood at the time that I listen? Yeah, it can be very particular in that way too. Cause I mean, if you're somebody that like um, can get frustrated or like even to the point where you're like angry, like it's, it's, it's a chore to tell yourself to sit down and listen to this. Cause it's not a quick fix. Right. And not cathartic in the sense of like, Oh, I'm really mad. So I'll listen to black dog or like some ACDC song and it'll be like a release of that aggressive Anger. Uh, energy right. um also that was a good point what you said about how um dark star didn't stand out as much in comparison to the rest of the show with that may 23rd one because that show 
the jam suite takes up the lowest percentage of the entire tour only 19.76 percent of the show is the jam suite so interesting that that um subconsciously i wasn't aware of that um but that that you know was part of that um show not resonating with me so much yeah i think the show itself actually is a bit underrated and has some some really tight versions of of other stuff like uncle john's band for instance uh closing it out but um yeah i would agree about dark star did this exercise uh teach you anything new about the dead nothing too new but that's because i had a bit more exposure to dark star before this um but it did um you know affirm that there is value in listening to different versions that they do because they are so different whereas like like you don't need to go back and listen to like bootlegs of um a beatles tour (laughs) there's no difference or even right like zeppelin there are songs where it's like you're gonna hear it you know pretty much the same uh on every on any given night or even more so the stones right like you're getting pretty much the same thing every night whereas with the dead you know, if you're somebody that can be into listening to, you know, show for every day, uh, you know, it's the right band to do it with because they're make sure that you you get lots out of it and that it's not just boring the whole time. Mm-hmm. Is there anything a bit more specific to their abilities as instrumentalists that? Uh, really impresses you in the context of dark star uh the improvisation of it like the harmony is so loose and they'll do different stuff with it um right and knowing that it wasn't planned mm-hmm. like they didn't sit down and go oh tonight we're gonna go for that feel um it's really like naked in that sense where it's like you've got a lot of parts that are kind of wacky and the band is just barely keeping it together because it's such a a strange combination of things. Um, but it's because of that, that it works. It's their, their ability to, to stay together, their chemistry and, and then also like, right. Like you're talking about players that are really, really smart when it comes to choosing notes. And, you know, they were always very good at coming up with chord sequences that were like, um, normal enough that you could grasp them, but different in all the right ways so like all the time i'll be listening to a grateful dead song i'm like ah that's weird there that chord's weird and they're just really good at choosing the right time to add a little dissonance to it um there's always tension being created and released during the song and to know that they're doing that on the go and that it's freeform is crazy it's really impressive Mm -hmm. and you were saying before we got on that dark star especially really stretches the boundaries of what can be said can can be considered a right note yeah um because right like a lot of times uh you don't have to do like crazy jumps between notes so the interval doesn't have to be very big for it to be like theoretically quite complicated it's oftentimes using notes that sit between ones that like belong in the key Mm -hmm. um 
and depending on how deeply you want to get into it, there's differing ones. Like there's a flat five note that sits between the fourth note and the scale, the fourth and the fifth degree. Mm-hmm. And the fourth and fifth degree are really like fundamental to music. You're, they're in like every song you hear. But the flat five, it's like, yeah, but most people don't use that because it's really like, it's a bit difficult to pull off. Um, and if you're going to do it, you have to really pick your notes right. It's all about voice leading. Um, and then when you're talking about people doing that on the fly, though, like right, like Jerry is holding a note and he just slides it down one fret. The rest of the band's going to be hearing and going, oh, that was weird and be adjusting to compensate for that. And so you'll get really odd combinations where he's playing a note where it's like, you know, if it was on like a three minute song, it'd just be a wrong note. Or if it was with like a really uh, functional progression that has a pattern and a sequence to it, you would be like, no, that note's wrong. But because it's free form and it's kind of like outer space in that terms of it's like one sound shooting off in this way and one sound shooting off in the other. Mm-hmm. Um, it works. And, and that's why their, their improvisation skills are so important for this because they're listening to each other and adjusting based on what they hear. And then in other times they're anticipating and they're being the first one to cue a kind of shift in the harmony. Yeah. And I love how you can hear sometimes they'll either how quickly they can be in lockstep when one of them goes off in a different direction or when you'll hear one of them uh like toss back an idea that one of the others had introduced a few minutes earlier and it shows how how closely they're listening to each other not just putting their head down plowing away that um i think it was in uh it was in paris the other one actually uh when i was reading back over my notes there's one point where but i know it happens in a few of these dark stars too where um you know, Phil was trying to initiate the theme and the others kept like pulling away from him, like, no, we don't want to yet. And then, um, and Bob like introduces this theme and Jerry at first, like goes along with Phil playing the actual theme. And so it's like, oh, okay, Phil's one. And then Jerry like abruptly like flips into what Bob had introduced a few minutes earlier. Like he, double crossed Phil and like the little games that they're the confidence to be just up there thumb wrestling with each other in front of a live audience on such a long song. Well, and also too, that like what Bob played was probably off the cuff. And then Jerry internalized that and was able to memorize those notes just off of listening. And he was able to do that while he was playing something completely differently. It takes a uh, great bravado to play like this. Mm-hmm. okay so moving towards wrapping this up for somebody listening who has never listened to the dead never listened to dark star this isn't their type of thing uh whether they're a musician or not uh what advice would you give them why how would you convince them that um it's worthwhile for them to listen to at least you know the top couple dark stars from this tour if you think that they should and would your advice be any different for musicians versus not uh yeah musicians i think i could suggest this too and they like they would get mad at me it might not be their thing but they'll be like 
oh, okay. Like I get it. You're trying to make me listen to something that's like complicated and interesting. Um, for average listeners, do not start with this. If you're not a, if you're not a dead fan and you don't like the, the kind of four or five minute gems, um, start there, work your way up to this. Don't just don't, you know, dive straight into the deep end, not really knowing what you're getting into. Um, but if you are a fan that you're kind of becoming familiar with a lot of their stuff and you're wondering what all the hype is, um, start with Paris from Europe 72. <laughs> it helps that it flows into perhaps the best sugar magnolia they ever did. Um, you know, I always would have agreed with you, but oddly enough, uh, on the Rotterdam anniversary, uh, we in the Discord group, two of the guys who had been the most avidly resistant to getting into the dead they were for whatever reason they're like oh fine like you guys won't shut up about rotterdam just put it on and i said oh do you want to hear a short song first and they're like yeah sure so i played bertha from veneta because it has like a really crazy solo from jerry and he was like the song's okay jerry's solo was amazing and then i was like what do you want to hear next he's like oh just give it to me put on the rotterdam dark star so i did and they both became like diehard deadheads from it i was surprised wow that's interesting yeah because that's definitely one where like when you started getting into the dead and you would talk about dark star i'd just kind of be like dude like i tried listening to it it's not my thing you know um so that that's um intriguing uh that there are people that you're able to convince uh, to give that a shot and to be going into it, you know, level-headed and can actually enjoy it. You're not going in biased. Yeah, because it really is jumping off the deep end. I agree with you. Okay, well, that's probably all we have to talk about today. Uh, you'll be back in three weeks to talk about Blonde on Blonde for its 55th anniversary. I know you're really excited for that one. I want you. I've already started learning the uh, the songs, some of them. The lyrics will be the challenge for that one. So I can always print out a couple sheets. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The, uh, I think lyrical analysis will be a big part of that one. Yeah. My my favorite line from the whole thing is Shakespeare's in his alley with his uh, whistles and his bells or oh, pointed yeah. in his bells. Mine's, talking to mine. some French girl who says she knows me well. I think my favorite is um, with your silhouette when the sunlight dims into your eyes where the moonlight swims, just the, the intonation of his voice. Well, I'm, uh, I'm really stoked to get into that one, and thanks for having me back on. Yeah, anytime, bro. Thanks for coming. We'll see you soon. See you. Okay, so I hope you enjoyed Spencer and I's chat, and now I will turn it over to my chat with Jeremy to get his ranking. I apologize for the duplicitous nature of this. Uh, Jer's Wi-Fi was uncooperative again, so I 
recorded the interview with him in my backyard as we did last week for the other one episode. It's a great pleasure to be joined once again by my best friend Jeremy Shaw. He was with us last week to rank the Europe 72 versions of the other one and back to do the same for Dark Star this week. Welcome back, man. Oh, thanks, Zach. It's a pleasure to be back, guys. Um, it's an honor to be ranking these Dark Star shows. Mm. So I know last year you started listening to these shows and got as far as about Dusseldorf and then kind of burnt out there. Um, how did you find the journey this year? What made it different that enabled you to not just get to the end, but enjoy it all the way through. Well, I mean, first things first with the with starting, you know, last year, um, my mindset was completely different. You know, I didn't have that same astute listening that I do now. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know, um, like we talked earlier last week, it's a muscle that you're obtaining in your brain when you're listening. You know, uh, it's different when you're rating these songs. Um, and really comparing them for what they are than just listening for pleasure in a sense. You know, we did both, of course, during this journey, but uh, and this way around, the second time around listening, um, you know, having Spencer here and, and yourself and we're actually conversing uh, or, you know, going through each show and that kind of stuff yeah. gives you a bit more motivation, you know? Yeah. It's, it's almost like a positive peer pressure, per se, mm-hmm. uh, to keep going because, hey, you don't want to be the, la- the last one out not listening, right? So Yeah, I could see that. Mm-hmm. So... Why don't we dive right into your ranking and then we can discuss from there. How do you rank these? uh, We'll go best to worst this time. Okay. Yeah, so uh, for the rankings of these, uh, I had uh, Rotterdam first. I had uh, Paris second. Then I had uh, London. um, And that's... Which London? The, uh, oh... Yeah, you gave it to me. Uh, so the third London show, May twenty third. Yeah, and then I had uh, Copenhagen, uh, the and then one. I had um, um, London again, and then Bickershaw, and then uh, Munich, and then Copenhagen um, again, and then Dusseldorf, London, Hamburg, and that's it. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, I agree. I have the same top two as you. Um, what let's talk first about why you like those ones the best alright for sure yeah so I chose Rotterdam of course uh, I am a little bit biased in that sense because I did um, you know have a really good mindset towards uh, the set list to its entirety as well uh-huh. um, the length of the show was great as well I believe that was like three hours 44 minutes or something like that three hours 49 yeah Yeah. so around that and, and it was incredible I mean guys from start to finish uh, you're in awe like it's just if you're a deadhead and, and you're listening to that show it's just you're going to be going nuts and then of course you know I'm a really uh, big fan of um, the art for for the album as well you know um, having that option to you know dive deep into the mindset of it so I mean guys this is a little bit off trail but you know why is in my high school years you know one of the very um, starter parties of my uh, existence. <laughs> I was uh, putting on a pair of clogs. Our friend Shane, who's uh, 
we went to a high school that had was quite Dutch uh, heritage wise, but he was one whose parents actually his dad was born in Holland, so he had clogs in his basement. And, and me being myself, you know, I'm very uh, uncultured and uh, <laughs> just open with what I say. So I said, "Oh, look at these things! Like, what are these?" And he goes, "Oh, those are my clogs, or whatever." And he says, "I'm like kind of a Dutchman, you know. Uh, no offense to anybody out here that's listening for that. Uh, my apologies." But anyway, so I go over there, take off my shoes. You know, I had a you know a comfortable amount of uh, liquid in me, um, liquid gold, I should say. And then uh, I'm just dancing around in them. They were painful, of course, even though they're supposed to be fitted perfectly to feel nice. But anyways, to round, uh, you know, to to bring my uh, free range turkey uh, back into the the field. Um, I, I ranked it the way I did because when I looked at this cover art and the album art, I should say, you know, seeing that clog right around those uh, colorful tulips, it looks like, yeah. you know, I took that kind of um, over the fields and far away, you know, like Swiss Family Robinson, you know, okay. and who doesn't love Sound of Music? So take that with a little bit of modern day Grateful Dead, you know, and yeah. bam, you've got me. Like, energized, great show, start to finish, and, uh, that's all I have to say about that. It's also the longest version they ever played of any song, if you count the drums in the middle of 48 minutes. Yeah, and you know, that's the beautiful part. When you're listening to the first, you know, a 13 minutes of, of uh, Dark Star, and then it just slides into drums, that is a true craft. Just being able to just slip into it. If you're, like, I find when Zach and I are in the yard and we're listening to some of the shows, you know, if I'm gabbing away about something, I don't pay attention enough. I won't. I'll miss the slide right into the, the kind of like a jam sequence that they're going into, right? Yeah. And you can you can tell when they're when they're trying to force them into it too. And sometimes you know they resist, but of course you know depending on if it's Jerry or Bob or them, they'll mm-hmm. fade into it. So. And then, um, what made you put Paris number two? Well, I mean, again, I'm, I'm always biased with the set list and that kind of stuff. Um, but it's just something about being in the Europe feel. And I know from the other one as well, when I was, uh, you know, ranking that as well, I had, I'm pretty sure I had one of the, um, you had Paris London number Paris one. one. Exactly. So it's just like something about, you know, and it's like not to scare any viewers, but you're in like one of those trench coats on a rainy day uh-huh. and you're just walking through and you've got like a cigarette, like kind of like a cigarette, but you're like a detective, right? <laughs> and you're going through the alleys and like the Jacques Clouseau. Exactly. Exactly like that. And then you guys all know that iconic red telephone booth. Uh-huh. So I'm in there, I close the door and I'm ringing the, the ring, the dial, and it starts the song for me. And I'm kind of just like, boom, I suck into this telephone booth. Uh, wormhole like we were talking about yeah, before yeah. and I'm on my journey and guess what nobody's in there because I've got the phone up to me and I've got this this how long was that show uh, my, my I don't have the skilled memory to remember every time Which, but Paris for too? Paris yeah for that dark star um, the well the dark star is uh, 39 minutes and change including the drums uh, so, and and that's the beauty of it too like when you have a long dark star right yeah and you know it's just an amazing opportunity to and that's why the phone booth is such a great opportunity because I'm on the phone for that 39 minutes per se for this reality that I've been inside this wormhole listening, right? Mm-hmm. And guys, take it with a grain of salt. Obviously, you know I'm allowing I'm allowing my mind to dive deep into these you know extravagant daydreams and and exploding um, uh, mindful ideas just right. for the sake of this you know ranking and for the song, right? To try to put myself in the state of mind for these deadheads because a lot sure. of the time you know these guys are having a great time at the concert you know they're obviously you know on the vibe train um yeah. 
which is encouraging, right? You want to try to get the best feel you can when you're when you're listening to, right? Mm-hmm. Um, another thing that interested me with your list mm-hmm. was having Dusseldorf down towards the bottom. What was your rationale there? Yeah, and I think uh, I did Dusseldorf down by the bottom just because, you know, as I started listening, um, you know, through each and every song, um, you know, you, you notice that... Uh, you start to get a variety of tastes for like certain songs and I get biased again I know we're comparing the dark stars but guys I have to be in a certain headspace in order to take that journey that full plunge into it right Right. so if I have certain ones like I remember um, like certain songs that stuck out to me that I didn't like as much was um, Black Throated Woman or something was that was Black Throated Wind Black Throated Wind oh soup sorry about that <laughs> Well, there's, there's brown-eyed women, so I see where you... Exactly. So I just got mixed up with that. Uh-huh. But there's certain songs that I kind of... I don't want to skip. I'm not going to be disrespectful. Yeah. But it's just kind of like, ah, uh, you know, my attention span, right. I need to have... Right? But that... They're not... I know. I know. It's, it's not uh, judging this dark star for what it is. I'm just saying there's so many good songs in each uh, show yeah. that there's there, one of them has to be at the bottom. And yeah. I know it's not the, the one that, you know, viewers and, and rankers are going to put... But we all have those certain songs that just, you know, are ups and downs. Fair enough. Um, well, why would you put it higher than? Let's just hear what you think of that. Well, I had it number three. Um, they must have played a better show that night, though, than the one that I put for my third spot. If you're shocked about my comparison, <clears throat> eh? Um, yes, I would say so as a full show. And definitely uh, for Dark Star... The one that you put third, I actually have dead last. Woo. Yeah. Uh, uh, for some reason, that that May 23rd London, it was the only one that I didn't really enjoy. Like, I never dislike a Dark Star, but it's the only one that was just kind of there and didn't really grab me. Well, what do you notice differently? So, from somebody looking into the Dark Stars who might not know as much about them as, uh, you know, even myself or you, uh-huh. you know, from what I hear from a Dark Star... You know, it's very hard for me to pick apart those key, key features that would mm-hmm. separate that that specific song. So if we're going to be, you know, if you're shocked about where my mindset is with the Dark Star compared to the me basing the shows, yeah, could you give us, you know, for the open ear for the viewer, uh-huh. some uh, key distinctive factors to why maybe, just for us to learn, you know, for those who are, you know, a bit higher on the level than I am, maybe at Spencer's level, Looking to, to try to achieve that master level of, of knowing the differences. If I don't, I don't want to chew your own horn. I'm just... <laughs> um, okay, so as far as why I had Dusseldorf so high, and frankly, it, it was uh, neck and neck with Paris for me for the second spot, and what ultimately tipped the scales was Paris having the second verse. It's the only one of the tour where they play the second verse. Um, Dusseldorf actually jerry is trying to and then bob uh overrides him into warfrat uh which is perfectly fine as well yes um, that's actually a really good song warfrat and i actually had to warm up to that too uh-huh. i first listened to it i was not a fan was i yeah i uh, just think uh, well that dusseldorf jam suite as a whole is fantastic but uh that dark star i think is the most intense start to finish dark star that i've ever heard what was the vibe you got on that one was that uh the outer like the walking off the face of the earth one that we had uh no that that one was just uh pure um outer space not, not to uh 
I won't say the the explicative, but you know what I mean. It was a mind blast, mind bender. Bender. Oh, um, it was. Uh, pro- it has the most intense uh, tiger section of any of these dark stars. I would say. Mm-hmm. Um, it was just. And how long was the jam sequence in there anyway? Well, that dark star is the second longest of the two, or forty minutes. Um, and they dropped me and my uncle in the middle, so including that, it's forty-three. And you are a fan of that for sure. Which would make it um, the third longest of all time behind Rotterdam and Cleveland 73, I believe. Um, So, yeah, just the intensity. um, Did they play me and Bob McGee in that one? At that show, yeah. Oh, see, you know know what? And that's why I love being on this show. You know, there's something about you and your craft where if if I make a biased opinion and it needs to be a little bit educated uh-huh. you know it's like it's like taking an athlete guys for example you know you're already at that elite level but when you have a trainer beside you even though you've already you know you're able to train somebody else on your own mm-hmm. you have that person looking from the outside and saying you know what no a little bit tighter form a little bit of a better start per se if you're like a sprinter uh-huh. and you're doing that for me right now which I appreciate <laughs> you're my you're my mind coach for these dark stars um. so I know well, it's a little bit off topic, I think but. the uh, and actually it also surprises me because I know you uh, you said you had been looking up pictures of the venues to get in the headspace, and I think the Rhine Hall in Dusseldorf is one of the prettiest of the tour, and the intro of this one actually to me sounds like they're looking up at the ceiling, admiring it. It starts kind of uh, very patient and um, spacious almost like they're taxiing like if you think of a plane when you're taxiing from the gate out to the runway and then so they're like slowly taxiing out before the spaceship blasts off but then when it does it really blasts off um you know what that sensation i get when you think about that it's like when you have that brain freeze but instead of a brain freeze it's like a sugar rush okay yeah yeah or like you know Eli Musk would put just <laughs> <laughs> um, but back to your question of oh, yeah. Sorry about that. what distinguishes one from the next and what separates the really good ones mm-hmm. um, Dark Star is an interesting case because um, more than just about any other song it's lacking in really obvious markers that you can use to like measuring sticks whereas say if we were to put it in Led Zeppelin terms dazed and confused you can say oh this one has a more um, like a more interesting intro or plant sounds better on this one or page is more fluid on this section or um you know the bow solo is better on this one or whatever but with dark star yeah, it's true. it really just comes down to the flow and the cohesion and the chemistry and um sometimes yeah you just get a more musically co- in you, tune like you, in you, sync with the flow yeah you get a more cohesive vibe from it and the, the jams seem to have a bit more of a trajectory that that London one it, it just seemed to me a 
bit more like dry maybe um just that like the playing was all technically sound it just didn't seem to to come together in the same way where those... they weren't one unit in a sense than how they normally were yeah like yeah normally the um the chemistry and the interplay is really interesting and complex and um the whole becomes greater than the sum of its parts uh and that felt like do you find the, the mind the bending experience is a little bit deeper in that too sorry the mind bending experience on that dark star was a little bit deeper too in Dusseldorf mm-hmm. oh yeah that it's one of the one of the scariest ones out there for sure it's in fact Spencer had it not as low as you did he had it fifth and he said it was because it was almost too intense for him too much to handle eh? yeah wow well you know but I think that's the beauty of ranking because I think everyone's going to have their own kind of uh, biases for how certain songs hit their heartstrings or you know not even that just like their mindset of like where you're listening to it like you know what if you're uh, listening to it right after uh, you know you're heading off like on a weekend day right or like mm-hmm. a Friday night your mindset might be different than if you're listening to it just after uh, like on a Monday or Tuesday weeknight yeah so but not saying that's that true. but anyways but uh, what were your thoughts on um, Copenhagen? That uh, is probably one of my favorite uh, cover arts of all of them. The the first Copenhagen show, yeah, that one, um, I love it. It's uh, it pained me to have it as low as eight. Ooh. It and that's more of a credit to the ones above it than an indictment of it. Um, I feel like there's a decent separation. My list. By the way, Jerry was Rotterdam, Paris, Dusseldorf, the second London, April eighth, which you had down towards the bottom, um, and then the fifth London, May twenty fifth, which we both had in fifth place. Actually, we can come back to that. Uh, in Munich, we both had six, so that's cool. yeah. Because my London, my second London was uh, third, and yours was no, no, your fourth. your third London was third. Oh, third from the bottom, I meant. So my second yeah, letter is third yeah. from the bottom. My apologies, guys. Um, and then Hamburg, and then Copenhagen 1, Copenhagen 2, Bickershaw, London 3. Mm. So uh, to answer your question about Copenhagen, uh, I think it has one of the most gorgeous preverse sections, uh, some nice interplay. Uh, there's one point where they one of them starts to initiate the theme and the others pull away like no let's keep exploring for a bit more mm. um that was cool and who do you think's better at doing that by the way is jerry bet the best probably at pulling people away or do you think bob is one of the better ones um because i don't think the, it's peter right the one guy phil or phil sorry uh the, all three of them uh do it a decent amount and i've heard bill do it that's sometimes too um but yeah i also love the feeling groovy jam in that one it's one of the fastest that i've heard the only reason i had it lower was it felt a bit lopsided with the first verse coming 17 minutes in when it was only 29 minutes long had it had a bit more uh jamming on the back half i might have had you it felt a, bit a little higher. bit cheated maybe from the back half of it eh? 
Not so much that I have uh, this weird pet peeve that not everybody shares uh, about <laughs> maintaining the the proper like ratio in uh, lengthwise of different sections of the song. Um, to bring it back to Zeppelin again, the uh, the Pontiac seventy seven version of No Quarter. It the whole time it's humming along on pace to be one of the best versions of the tour, and then. Page's solo starts um, whatever the timestamp is, I forget, 16 or 18 minutes. Uh, and for starting that far into the song, it should go on for you know closer to 10 minutes, but it's only four minutes long. Really? So then you feel kind of like the song's lo- imbalanced, right? Mm. Um, but that's just a personal pet peeve. That but that's a good pet peeve to have, though, because I think that you're really... Um, getting a pure quality of of expectation of how it should be, and I think that's what the, the artist probably needs to veer towards. Is that's why they need to hear critics, or not necessarily critics, but constructive criticism. Because mm-hmm. even somebody who studied their music so much as you, you know, you have the ability to be like, you know, what this is your opinion, get it out there and get it known. Because you know, what veers off uh, your opinion is still important. Like a lot of these other. Um, uh, critics out there that, that rank these songs in, in certain levels. You know what I thought was actually really cool about ranking songs is that you and I had the same uh, Munich mm-hmm. and that our London's, our London, uh, is it London 5? Yeah. Are the same as well. So I know that we had a little bit of uh, you know disagreements, or not disagreements, but um, mm-hmm. separation in, in songs for rankings, but yeah. at least we matched up on some of them though. Yeah. But the wavelength was coming back around. Speaking of those two, mm-hmm. uh, those were two that I got the strongest um, vibe from or narrative if you will the the story that you sort of tell yourself as you're going through the journey to enhance it I wonder if we got the same type of feel what uh, feel did you get from those two well that's the thing you know it's it's hard sometimes to get the same feel when we're not in the same um, you know listening party right if we were in the backyard it could be like mm-hmm. maybe sinking in right mm-hmm. um but I think though, uh, depending on like when you're really diving deep into the song, the feel I'm getting is, you know, a lot of the time from Dark Stars I get uh, an outer space vibe, you know, like I'm orbiting the Earth and looking, and then you're almost seeing like this hurricane or storm on the Earth, and you can see these bolts of lightning every once in a while, and it kind of just sends you in a trajectory of like whoa, like you know, because they hit a verse in a certain way, right, mm-hmm. or. You know, just like Jerry hits a good note, right? Or mm-hmm. something like that. I mean, depends on how the guitars are playing, right? And obviously, mm-hmm. it depends on, on that night. But um, it's almost far-fetched. It's like a meteor shower, right? So, um, I mean, Munich was definitely a, probably my favorite. Um, I mean, in terms of, like, the show entirety uh, wasn't as good, and that's why it's a little bit lower. But the Dark Star in London 5 um, probably won my heart. It was more of a cave theme more of like a dark underwater but like you know at some point you're kind of like I get claustrophobic so it was kind of like that but you know how you're in a sense of like you're still controlled in your environment but you've lost control a little bit I got I got a cave feel from that one too really it's, it felt like um like bats inside the cave and like well, glisten gloomy if it felt like one where you're uh like this time this time the spaceship 
has actually landed on one of the planets and then you're like exploring the planet um and at first it's kind of like sunny and then you wander into a cave and uh it's dark for a bit yeah, it gets kind some, of dark yeah. some darker elements and then at the end that's the one where it felt like you're falling off the edge of the earth if it was like a flat earth planet that you've landed for on. all you flat earthers out there <laughs> yeah. you know what for this episode we'll support you <laughs> yeah, shout out Kyrie Irving <laughs> oh I didn't know he was a flat earther that's a great thing you he, learn every day he is <laughs> guys you come here for music and you get sports as well <laughs> um, like where Tim and Sid <laughs> uh, and that one actually when we were listening in the backyard you were saying uh it gave you kind of like a, a Jack the Ripper feel like he was oh yeah because like it was in London it cut out so at one point in the cave section it could also feel like and that could come back around to my trench coat scenario too you know they get on a sort of a jam uh, within the song and it's almost like you know it it's the the background music for a certain scene and like yeah. well that any of these these thrillers that you have right looking over my shoulder in exactly. the backyard now just saying <laughs> You know, yeah, we've got a couple large windows behind us, guys, and before they were darkened, so, you know, you get that kind of face effect in the windows. Mm -hmm. And Munich was the one that I was getting the underwater feel from. You know, it started off already sounding aquatic, like you're uh, maybe out sailing, and then at one point you take a plunge under the water, and now you're, like, in a submarine instead of a sailboat, and you're journeying to the lost city of Atlantis, for example. I was going to say lost city of Atlantis. I literally was flashback to my childhood with the, with them. Just the cartoon. Atlantis. Yes, yeah. they're going down. And I was, you know what? I had a different thing. That, so you have the submarine. Sorry to cut you off, guys. I got so excited. He had the submarine version, but I had it as you ever have when you step into an infinity pool, per se, and the tiles just sink beneath you. Yeah. And you kind of just all of a sudden you're in like a, uh, a tube-like cylinder and you're just kind of taking that aquarium a feel to it and you're shooting down and you know in my scenario because you know zach and i sometimes are on the same mind length i'm going down this air tube seeing the city of atlantis and zach's passing beneath my air tube in his submarine and when we can see the radar ping that he's reacting to it him and i are on the same wavelength to to where we're journeying through this atlantis city so that's <laughs> definitely a cool uh, thought i'm happy we're on the same it's... wavelength for that <laughs> yeah so then you know, you get to the the bottom of the ocean when it gets to the tiger section, and it's all going nuts. And then the way they come out of it in that really fast-paced jam on the way to Morning Dew, it sounded to me like racing back to the surface before you run out of air. And you're just it's getting like, that pain, like, yeah, oh, I'm not like going to make frantic. it. And oh. then it kind of, like, explodes into nothing for a second before going into Morning Dew. And to me, that was, like... Did we make it to the top and we like get a breath, or did it die? And I like how you mentioned that too, because guys, when I'm when I'm listening as well, you know, I'm also thinking about the more um, you know in depth, uh, you know, the songs and the the vibes that we're getting. And guys, it's almost like you know, picture yourself under that that surface, right? And I'm in my pressurized tube. He's in his submarine. You know, no matter what, guys, whatever you're doing, if you're launching up through the water at that rapid speed that pressure you're building guys is just bundling up inside you just want to release it you exactly. know what I mean so it's definitely like an explosive feel and once you get to the top you kind of level out and you're just like oh 
and then you go and I just jam right out again through it and it's just beautiful another interesting thing to me with your ranking was having Bickershaw all the way up at number four because uh, well tell me tell me why you had it there first and I'll tell you why I think it's interesting yeah you know why um, so I was actually uh, pretty excited about Bickershot so guys just a visual for what I was experiencing uh, it's the one with the crow on the end of a guitar and it's yeah. a beautiful picture uh, I mean I love the colors in the background it gives me a Bob Marley kind of vibe okay I, I was thinking you know I'm on the side of a beach right now with like a pina colada in a hammock you know, I'm abandoned, so I'm getting, you know, that feel. And the reason why I say I'm abandoned, guys, and you'll know because uh, when I took that uh, visual setting on place, I had to be in a comfortability state for when they're in the beginning of that song. But when they go on that trippier kind of feel as well, even in there, I kind of feel like a Jack Sparrow. I've been left for dead. They've taken my ship, and they've been sailed, they've sailed off without me on the journey while I'm still here vibing out, experiencing yeah. it, right? And it's a bittersweet, though, because you're in a paradise but you also know, hey guys, like, when are you gonna realize I'm not on the boat? You know, okay. come back and get me. I've lost my mind on this trip, this journey, and that's why Bigger Show was so good for me. And and the reason why the crow um, is, is such a deep thing for me as well for the visual art is, you know, I use that bird in. So you know, I use that bird for it's my uh, bird on the island, and and I need to send this letter once I'm ready to be rescued from my um, journey through this dark star to the men on the boat to come back and, and pick mm -hmm. me back up for, you know, the ending of the song again to bring me back up to my, you know, surface level per se. Yeah. Like in our other experience we were in. So guys, you, you'll notice a common factor for me at least, uh, you know, going into it, uh, it's very relaxed and then I always get a nice fluctuation because I really try to get the deep imagination in the, the mid parts of the song. Interesting. Yeah. yeah the What are your thoughts on it? Well, the reason I had it second from the bottom was just uh, because it's by far the shortest. It's just under 20 minutes. Um, and, you know, the, the pre-verse is 17 minutes and is really awesome and is on pace to be one of the best versions. But then they go into drums and then on into the other one after that. So it felt incomplete compared to the others that's the only reason i had it lower that's fair and i mean i also am biased too because i do love trucking and sugary and that put me in a good starting mood just for just the overall i mean i know yeah, other with, shows, with those being the opening songs of the show exactly. yeah other shows had them as well in, in the yeah. set list but I, i'm a creature of just put me in an explosive headspace for the beginning of it yeah and i'll ride that out like a good surfing wave into my island okay everything comes together it's a beautiful journey guys just think of a think about being um, uh, Bob Ross, guys. This this musical journey is your canvas, right? Paint whatever you like. Put a touch of white on there. <laughs> oh, you know, put a little bit of trees in there. This is your exploration. This is your your picture. You know, you can't mess it up. You can only make it better. Is is I'm paraphrasing, of course. Yeah. And judging by Zach's laughter, guys. But I mean, I hit it uh, dead on the nail. If I like to toot my own horn, I think. Thalo blue and Elizabeth and crimson. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, one last question about your ranking, uh, and then we can move on to some other stuff. The second London show, the second show of the tour, you have second last the one with the buckingham palace guard on the cover uh that surprised me a little bit i figured that it might appeal especially to you being so energetic and um this 
the really exuberant uh, proto mind left body jam towards the end and the smooth transition into Sugar Magnolia. Um, you know, that's the one dark star. If somebody asked me, like, what's an example of a coked up dark star, that's the one I would give them. Well, and I mean, it's tough for me because obviously, and they opened up with Birth on that show too, yeah. and that got me loaded like nothing else too. So, um, you know, cocked up and loaded, got that batch of cookies ready for you guys, you know. Um, but I mean, yes, I, I have to say, you know, obviously great visual art as well having that uh, guard up there smelling the roses right mm -hmm. you know guys it's like that expression with life you know take a moment to smell the roses or and just enjoy it right so you know what I gotta admit I was a bit biased obviously you know the set list is fantastic me and my uncle is one of our favorites as well and whatnot but I think I, I was a little bit biased though on that show Zach because I started getting in the journey of liking the longer shows I know that was only 200, 2 hours and 58 minutes mm -hmm. But, like, when you get into the three-hour, 40-minute mark on some of these other shows, yeah. there's no comparing. You can't just throw an extra hour. It's like going up to your employer and saying, you know what? You know, I'm working extra hard today, but I'm going to take an extra hour off work. doesn't matter what they're saying. You know, they're going to still be like, ah, you know what yeah. I mean? And I'm a little bit biased just for that because, you know, if you would have taken my you know ADHD self and threw that at me, yeah, I want that coked-up version. I want the jitters. I want to go into caution and all those kind of things. Yeah. I want to be exhilarant, right? Yeah. But I tried to get that astute feel, that deeper meaning behind it, okay. and just dive into it. So yes, guys, my ESFP performer attitude, boom, you put that show, it's in top three, top four. But when I was trying to use my shadow uh, um, senses, yeah. okay. right, my, my functions for that, uh, I tried to put it on the back burner a little bit and say, you know what, how would Jeremy not think, <laughs> and, and how would he try to, you know, relatively think like Zachary in these? And so I mean, I might have overshot myself. I might have thought a little bit too hard into it, but I think though, with respect to you know having my eyes open up to you know really picking apart the set list and the, and the, the mindset of it, yeah, I, I love just being converted into the true deadhead that I need to be. You know what <clears> I mean? And this is part of building that that uh, journey is even these expressions for it because you know I might have been blindsided. I might not have had a proper visual setting that you've laid out. So well, you know, sure, yeah. Yeah, not saying Zach sways my opinion, guys. I'm very well spoken in my opinion, but you know, sometimes you gotta listen to the expert on these kind of things. You know, he has the study under his belt. Well, there are. I know there are, Logan Paul. Or, or. <laughs> there are a lot of uh, deadheads who still know a lot more than me, but that's fair. Um, Shout out to the Discord. Grateful to Discord for that. Yeah, well, lots of them are a lot older than me, so they've been listening to these shows for years compared to, you know, five or six years for me. We should mention. We'll be heading soon for shows, guys. Oh, yes. We, uh, we're we going to both Nights of Dead and Company at Wrigley Field in September, Lord willing. So that should be a lot of fun. You know, that, and that, guys, will be an incredible experience because we're going to have lower uh, deck for one of the nights and then upper deck for the next. So we're going to have definitely uh, a great sound quality on both nights. Yes, let's hope the weather's going to be good. And, of course, when you're getting uh, Dead and Company now is what we're actually going to be uh -huh. seeing with Don Mayer. Uh, you know, the lead vocals for that. But, guys, it's going to be incredible. You're getting practically a new show each night with these guys. Yeah. So, and he and, and I'll give respect to John Mayer. You know, he's no, he's no um, Jerry, but, 
you know, he he does a heck of a job for replacement though, to help out with that. Yeah, not every not everyone could hardly anyone could fill, fill the shoes. His shoes even close to as well as John has been doing. If you're looking at shoes, guys, he's got shack size shoes or Ronald McDonald. You know, we're talking about those big boys. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. Anyhow, back to London too. Um, I the length is the only thing really that I can have against that show if we're looking pound for pound as far as like performance quality of each song that one's fantastic um okay so moving on from the ranking side of things um I know you had a bit more experience with Darkstar coming into this exercise than you did with the other one how do these Europe 72 Dark Stars compared to the ones that you've heard in the past. Yeah, you know, I will say this. Pound for pound, guys, if, if you're comparing the best show of this uh, journey to the best show I've listened to in, t- in its entirety would be, you know, my favorite show of all time is Fillmore East. The February 13th, 1970? Yes, yeah. and guys, the reason why is that um, there's a, a key person in there um, that's that Mickey plays Hart yes on Mickey the Hart. Giro. yes exactly so Zach already knows where my mind's going for this I just don't have the words to back it up but there's something about the Giro guys just picture that beautiful summer night with those crickets you know and you're just out there and you're having a bunch of s'mores and you're around a fire right and you're getting that brisk kind of you know feel every once in a while but then you need to throw on a warm blanket to kind of warm you up that's what I get, guys, you know, and, and it's an amazing experience for that show because, you know, there's no fear in that show. It's more of a, you know, let's experience this journey and, you know, the elements of Earth are giving us the the kind of, ooh, it, kind of, you know, feel to it. It is a bit more warm and soothing. That uh, Sometimes these Europe ones, especially Rotterdam, I'm like, you get a bit rainier. Well, no, well, no. I was gonna say you get a bit nervous before you listen. It's like it's not every day that I'm up for that level of experience. Especially if you're tired, you know, you gotta be in the right headspace too. If you come from a bad day at work and you're listening to those ones, you know, you, you might not be in the proper headspace as well. Right, but but that February thirteenth one, I could put on any time in it. That's number one for it sure. It's just right. I'd say uh, Fillmore West. Sixty-nine. Yeah. I think I'm not too good on the years because I've been trying to listen to them more and more. But and I would probably put 15 for this show either second or third in my all-time favorites. And I I know you uh, you've also heard Vanetta. Oh, I know you're big on that one. Oh, buddy, I think guys, Vanetta is probably I think one of my very first dark stars. I have to say. And can I tell you guys, I wasn't there, but the heat at that show. It tell it shows in the playing, you know. They're yeah. trying to put on a show to save these fans. Like these guys are are you know practically stripped down, and they're just jamming out with this with these fans going and everything. Like it's it's one hundred and three Fahrenheit out there. Yeah, and it's a beautiful setting, guys. If you if you had to picture that dark star, the feel of it is like going into a beautiful summer sunset in Oregon. It's just you know there's nothing better it's a it's a friday night saturday night feel yeah you don't have work you don't have responsibility you just you know you've taken your enhancements for this experience and you're just ready to ride them out yeah you know the kids are at home with a babysitter (laughs) (laughs) you know what you're doing for that yeah and that one is uh just three months after this tour finished so 
uh, similar but no pig pen so there's no organ on it not that that usually played a huge role in dark star it was just a fun and, little touch to it you know yeah but it didn't make the song to its entirety yeah um what sort of listening experience do you associate with dark star in general i would say um like listening experience for atmosphere or mindset for it uh both yeah i would say you know what if i was to um show somebody you know one of the top three songs i would put dark star definitely in there for you know you've got to try it out right it would probably be third out of the three okay um and you know i could give you one and two just to give you the mindset of where i would put them in if you'd like sure all right so i would have bertha yeah. for my number one opener for somebody yeah all right i would either put um me and bobby mcgee as second or caution and then dark star would have to be either okay, a third okay. or fourth song i think it's because you're getting such purity in these songs but then you know when, right when they think it's over like oh you know that's all he's given me to listen to they get a kick in the pants with the dark star <laughs> saying whoa you know this band can do all sorts of things yeah so, but as far as like, you oh, know, the experience itself. Like, Sorry, like, I got caught off track. Some, yeah. Like some songs make you think of going for a walk in the woods, or some. This songs would where... be an outer space experience, guys. If I had to just narrow it out into all of my settings, you know, in one kind of big picture, picture a snow globe, and you have all different sorts of of landscapes on there, or not even a snow globe, like like a Google Earth per se. Mm-hmm. You can pick your destination. For whatever dark star you're feeling, depending on the location, but really you're still looking at it from the outer space feel, because it can go anywhere. It could go into the Milky Way in some parts. It can go into a, a meteor shower. Like guys, this dark star, and the reason why it's an amazing song to study is because it takes you with so many different elements of emotions, and the and the uh, variety and, and versatility in this song really creates a thinking process. Whether or not you're uh, an introverted thinker or extroverted thinker, you're going to be triggered in a positive way listening to this. Yeah. So I know I'm a little bit off track with my free range turkey, but I'm very passionate about Dark Star. I have the shirt on actually. Yeah, we got our to match the shirts. host. Yeah. <laughs> um, which do you prefer between Dark Star and the other one? Dark Star for sure. I know the other one, guys. I'm a I'm a fan fave for sure of that. I, I do love that. Uh, and that's why, um, you know, uh, even listening back, like, like the show with both of them, and it was was quite the experience because you're excited. You know, you have two fantastic um, home run hitters in the same set list as well, um, let alone the other ones as well that are there. But I think it's if I was with you know uh, a group of friends, you know, for like a, a weekend exploration you know cottage up north kind of thing mm-hmm. i'd pick the dark star but if i'm in a local setting with like you know um summer feels and i'm just trying to have a good vibe you know barbecue with the boys mm-hmm. i'm gonna pick the other one because i think that um and then they're both in entireties is one is more you know surreal i can go on a mind bender because i have the free time for it yeah the other one's kind of like a staycation you know let me get out of reality for a bit but then still be able to come back in if i need to Interesting. Yeah, I was yeah. gonna ask, uh, how would you compare the two? What do you, what differences do you do you find? Well, I mean, 
right off the bat, you, like even the opener, they're quite different. I mean, I think though, um, for those two songs, you know, I don't have the same mindset as like I, I've changed my whole my whole setting and and I'm trying to um, be more level headed and and feel the groove on the other one, and I want to control where I go with it. Where the Dark Star, I'm like, take me with you. Like, I want to be the child being you know taken uh, by the parent on this journey. Okay. Or if we're on a bike ride, I don't want to be the bike peddler. I want to be the one in the carriage in the back. Okay. So I think for Dark Star, I want to be the the passenger. Yeah. And for the other one, I want to be the driver. I want to be you know telling the song where I want to go as I'm listening to it. So that's why I chose the barbecue because I'm the I'm the barbecue grilling man. I want to be on there, you know, feeling out feeling myself while I'm listening to the other one but on the, on the Dark Star there's no time for that I just want to yeah get my dominoes and and blast off you know yeah that actually makes a lot of sense as far as wanting to be the driver with the other one as opposed to the passenger with Dark Star because um I've always found the other one to be more driving and propulsive whereas Dark Star's kind of nebulous and floating and uh, I also find that Dark Star feels expansive like you go through the stratosphere and then space is like opening up like a star up exploding you. yeah whereas the other one is more like imploding like where like a wormhole or like a dark uh, black hole or yeah or, or for the ones that are spacier or um you know where Dark Star is the outer space exploration. The other one is like drilling to the Earth's core, or like going into a volcano or something. Ooh, I do like that mindset. Wow, you know, and that puts a whole twist on how you listen to each and every instrument too. When you have it like that, most mm-hmm. um, I also find that uh, the theme of the other one seems to have a stronger gravitational pull you know when they're playing it they always seem to get sucked back into the theme whereas they say true to the song instead of going veering off on these jam suites and these riffs yeah or dark star the theme just seems more uh loose and there's more room for the you know straying a lot further from just playing the theme straight on with it still sounding like Dark Star. Does it give them the ability as well if they want to put little some solos in there per se, they could. Yeah. That'd be some good feedback to throw out there in the atmosphere. By what do you mean by solos like when they drop drums in the middle or mm, like their own They did seem to do that more in the other one. Um and actually they Yeah, they did drop other songs in more often on the other one uh, even if we restrict it to this tour um, like, they, but I, sometimes I feel like though they did it to cradle the song though to kind of boost it along because the Dark Star has enough power on its own to kind of just poof. well that's interesting I never looked at it that way yeah you don't be. even know they want to cradle it in a proper it's like a sandwich you want to, you want to have two equal um, drop-ins on either side uh-huh. it doesn't make sense a little bit what I'm saying but yeah no I get you I get you uh, like for instance five of the other ones have something stuffed in the middle and two of them have two things in the middle mm. 
uh, only three of the dark stars have something in the middle, and it's the three longest ones. And what are they stuffed in the middle with? It's drums and and what other one is it? Uh, Not so far well, away. in the, in the case of the other one, uh, Paris has drums and me and Bobby McGee. Amsterdam has me and Bobby McGee. Uh, the last night in London has drums and morning dew. Uh, the first night of the tour has El Paso and our host has me and my uncle. But on the dark star side, and it actually causes a significant amount of fluctuation in the rankings for like which ones are the longest uh, on the other one side of things. But with dark star, it's only the three longest that have something in the middle. Rotterdam has drums Dusseldorf has me and my uncle in Paris has drums and it doesn't change the length rankings at all you know what I thought about that in that moment how incredible would it be to see all the shows though in person like, that would be a bucket list if we could have done that yeah that would be pretty sweet it'd be like bar hopping but with concerts wow <laughs> backpack around Europe following the Grateful Dead I bet you're people that did it Mm-hmm. Right? There's probably somebody out there that saw all the shows each. There definitely were people that followed them around on tour when they were back home in the States. I'm not sure about the Europe tour. Mm, that's fair. Um, and I think that's one of the examples that you can find in their their treatment of the two songs as far as how they integrated them into jam suites with stuffing songs in the middle or not, or whether transitioning out of another song as the other one almost always did, or starting cold. Um, it seemed to me that they almost had a little bit more respect for Dark Star as kind of a, a sacrosanct thing that they didn't want to taint too much by weaving a bunch of songs in and out of it or uh, messing with the length or structure too much it was kind of like okay if we're gonna play it we're gonna play it right and it has a certain length that it's evolved to by this point in its evolution and it's gonna hit that length whereas the other one they seemed to have a bit more of a loose relationship to as far as yeah we can stuff all sorts of stuff in it and transition into it from whatever and out of it into whatever and it's fine now, do you think they do that, though, to respect the Dark Star, though, in a way of just don't meddle with something that's already a good thing? Or do you think that they were trying to uh, express the other one into, like, leaping into, like, the Grateful Dead Hall of Fame, per se, with their set list of songs? Like, you know how there's certain, like, take this for example, you know, there's certain athletes that you know are just going to be in the greatest of all time, right? Mm-hmm. I feel like Dark Star, they knew, was already a home run. So yeah. they knew to keep it to its entirety, don't mess with the good thing, the fans love it. But I think the other one, though, you know, there's not nearly in, uh, as many studies, probably, as there, there is on Dark Star, right? It's a high free range with it, to try to kind of craft it to what they wanted, right? Yeah, I feel like they probably weren't terribly, uh, you know, consciously striving to, to affect the legacy of their own stuff within their catalog as far as oh, we want people to look... Consciously, they weren't. We want people to look on this one better than this one, or that sort of thing. Um, But there does seem to be a bit of difference in how they uh, they treated them on that front. For instance, after their 
hiatus in 74, they very rarely played Dark Star for a period of 15 years, uh, but they continued to play the other one during that time. It's just their, uh, their style changed and they weren't really doing these long, really far out jazzy jams, so, but they kept doing the other one in much shorter, you know, 10 to 15 minute versions, if that, uh, within a larger jam suite. And it's almost like they said, you know, we're, we're not going to give Dark Star that treatment if we're deciding we're not going to play it long enough to play it right, then we'd rather just put it on the shelf. Um, yeah, that's a really good way of thinking about it. That's such a mature way of crafting your mindset. To, wow. You're starting to think just like the musicians. I feel like that's a great uh, analysis on it. I don't have anything to add. I'm sorry. <laughs> well, thanks. Uh, I think uh, we probably uh, are about out of stuff to talk about here. Uh, do you have any final words for somebody who maybe hasn't gotten on the bus yet why they should tr give Dark Star a try um, specifically these Europe versions if that changes your answer at all yeah guys I think um, you know giving Dark Star a chance will really you know give you a proper perspective of what to expect from one of their great shows it gives you this entry point of just taking this song and you know that it's going to be true to its entirety and just picking which set list and which theme of, of setting of like you know whether in Europe or they're in Oregon or wherever they are you know and it's going to give you a show of a lifetime right and I think guys it all depends on which bus you're on as well all right we talked about that earlier in last week's episode are you a bozo or a <laughs> Right, and, and you know, I I, uh, I think that's a an amazing thing that um, they do as as a, as a group is you know the Grateful Dead allows just and that's why actually you know it brings me to my point they're uh, such faithful um, fans because they follow the Grateful Dead everywhere because it was a a band worth following. Right, it was a lifestyle more than just uh, a musical taste. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. They they. Guys, they put you on a roller coaster of emotions, and if you could follow that around all the different states while they're playing, for example, in the states, right? Mm -hmm. Like you would just be in your van, and and I think that's why Volkswagen got that hippie effect with their Volkswagen vans. Maybe. <laughs> so sorry if I go off on the on the free range turkey, guys. You know, Zach's my my hunter. He needs to blast my head off every once in a while to you know rein me back in. So. Okay. Terrible, terrible visual, but we're in COVID, guys. You need those kind of excitement moments. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, uh, I'll let you. I'll let you go this time, but <laughs> next time I won't blast your head off. <laughs> All right. Uh, w w when we're doing a show that has Candyman, if I had me a shotgun, I'd blow you straight to. <laughs> uh, uh, okay, well, it's, it's always a good time with you, man. Likewise, man. So. Uh, I'm not sure actually when you're on again next. I don't have any scheduled with you, but uh, we'll bring you back at some point, maybe uh, for the Zeppelin Japan 71 50th anniversary in September or something. Uh, I'd be honored if I have the opportunity and uh, you know situational settings allow it. I'll be on there to help you guys out. Bring the mic to Chicago and record at the hotel. <laughs> you know what? We're going to have a journey for sure over there, and I think... Um, 
there's some room for dark star experiences to be had for sure and the other one yeah all right well uh thank you for your time man thank you for coming by and uh look forward to having you on again soon thank you for having me and it's a pleasure so i hope you enjoyed my chat with jeremy as well now to bring this episode towards a close uh just want to talk for a minute about how i think europe 72 ranks as a dark star era and then we will also uh touch a little bit on comparing dark star and the other one so if we look at their ranks currently on headyversion.com you have London 2 in 8th, Rotterdam in 10th, Dusseldorf in 17th, Copenhagen 1 in 21st, Bickershaw tied for 36th, London 5 tied for 48th, Paris 2 tied for 54th, Hamburg tied for 61st, London 3 tied for 75th, Munich tied for 78th, and Copenhagen 2 tied for 83rd, which works out to an average of 44.63 I think as an average for the whole tour that's probably fair maybe a tad low uh, but it's kind of useless to average the whole tour because there's a huge disparity between the best versions and the not quite as great ones I think the very top versions are underrated uh London 2 might be accurate at 8th. I think Rotterdam is underrated at 10th for sure. Dusseldorf is extremely underrated at 17th. Copenhagen 1 21st could even be overrated, I would say, as much as I love that one. Uh, Bickershaw is overrated probably at 36th for only uh, for cutting off so soon after the first verse. Um, London 5 at 48th, a little underrated probably. Paris uh, being tied for 54th, hugely underrated. That's ridiculous. Um, Hamburg, 61, that's underrated, I would say. Uh, London 3, 75th, that's fine with me. Munich, 78th, probably a little underrated. And Copenhagen 2 at 83rd is... Uh, probably a little underrated, I would say, as well. I have to say the top 25 currently on Heady version is actually, for the most part, pretty good as far as which ones are in there, even if the order is a little wonky. There are a few that I disagree with being that high. Uh, October 26th, 89 in Miami. I love that version. It's probably the best uh, post-hiatus version but I st still don't think that it's top 25 worthy. Uh, same sort of deal for March 29th, 1990 in Uniondale. But anyhow, not that uh, 
you know, heady version rankings or gospel truth or anything. It's just interesting to see what the masses are thinking. I think it's really hard to pick a best Dark Star era, much easier to pick a favorite era. You know, the song evolved so much over that 67 to 74 period before the hiatus when it was um, a more integral part of the set and more reg- much more regularly played and was really focused on. I love the shorter uh, first stage Dark Stars, even the 68 ones. Um, of course, I love the second stage ones, the 69, the classic Live Dead sort of version from the Primal era as well. And then, as you know, February 13th, 1970 is probably my all-time favorite version, which is one of those second stage Dark Stars that hints at the third stage. I think 1970 and 1972 are the best years for Dark Star, in my opinion. Um, 1969 is fantastic as well, and that's a tough call. I love Jerry's Gibson tone on those. Just uh, they weren't quite as evolved and were a bit more um, homogenous the whole way. And then when it comes down to which one I prefer between 1970 and 1972, it really depends on the day and my mood. The 70s ones have a much more soothing quality. They sound almost campfire-ish with the uh, with Mickey Hart's Guiro making that crickety sort of sound, and um, you know they go pretty far out, but they uh, they handle your brain more gently. Whereas the '72 versions are really jazzy and complex and a bit more not necessarily energetic. A lot of them are, but it's more that it's a it's a traditional full band arrangement the whole way whereas a lot of those 1970 versions the drums can be pretty sparse through the pre-verse especially whereas in 72 they were a part of the fray the whole way through uh, since mickey wasn't there to keep the pulse with the gear with the guiro um but i would say the 72 versions are definitely more intense and are a more grueling journey mentally. Uh, So it really depends what you're in the mood for. Within 72, uh, as far as how the Europe versions compare with the rest of the year, I think they eclipse the, the ones or the one before it, that March 23rd one at the Academy of Music, although it's good as well. There are some equally all-time great versions to the best ones from this tour uh, later on in the year, August 27th, Veneta, Oregon, of course. Um, a few great ones from September, such as the one in Philadelphia, and some great ones from a little later in the year as well. So I would probably say that Europe is on par with the rest of 72 Dark Star quality wise, maybe a tad better in the sense that, um, you know, the peaks are about the same height as far as 
you know, Rotterdam, Paris, Dusseldorf are around the same caliber as your Veneta and your Philly versions. The difference being the, uh, the average quality might be a bit higher in Europe that the fact that they hit, uh, three to five of those peak all time, great level versions across only 11 takes of it in a month and a half span. Whereas, um, they hit that many versions of that caliber, maybe over many more shows and, uh, about a four month span four or five months span, uh, later on in the year in the States. And as far as the years, I forgot to mention, uh, 1971 is, I don't want to say a throwaway year for dark star, but it was a very transitional period for it after Mickey's departure. Um, he's on the first version of the year, uh, the February 18th Capitol theater one. And then that's his last show before he left for a few years. Um, so dark star was in a state of great flux for much of 1971. I don't think any 71 versions are true all time greats. I know the, uh, Halloween version from Columbus is currently ranked sixth, which I think is a, it's quite overrated that high. It is really good, but not that good. Um, and if anything, I would be biased towards it as a diehard Ohio State fan with it being on campus there. But anyhow, 71, I don't think can compete with Europe 72 as a dark star era for sure. 73 is interesting. It has its moments where the playing is at least as high of a level, but they're fewer and further between. Dark Star wasn't played nearly as often. And as I mentioned earlier, a lot of times uh, it kind of sounds like they the pre-verse segment would be epic. And then after the verse, it sounds like they kind of got bored with it and decided to go in another direction. And that applies mostly to 74 as well for the few versions of it in 74. Oddly enough, it's late in 73 when you get the, the really top 73 versions, the November 11th Winterland and December 6th Cleveland. And those two certainly feel complete and not like they got bored with them. Having said all of that, though, if we are defining an era as one particular tour, then I don't think there's much question actually that Europe 72 is the best Dark Star era when you consider that it produced four top 10 all-time caliber versions in 11 tries, and the other ones are all excellent as well. So are there isolated versions from other tours within 72 and other years that you might prefer over some or all of the Europe 72 versions? Sure, but I don't think you can find another individual tour or stretch of shows like this that produced such consistently all-time great caliber versions. You know, if you ask me what's the one tour whose dark stars you couldn't live without, I'm picking Europe 72. 
even though February 13th, 1970 is my all-time favorite individual version, and I love the overall 1970 sound and feel of those dark stars, that Feb 13th version is a bit of an anomaly for being that good. Like, 70 was pretty consistent for it, and they all have that great vibe and sound, and most of them are pretty good, but most of them aren't that good. You know, the general consensus for second best 1970 version is also at the Fillmore East, but September 19th. And uh, I'm also fond of the January 2nd, 1970 uh, Fillmore East again, Dark Star. But if they were playing it at a Europe 72 pace, those versions should have been clustered within a two or three week span, not a nine month span. And the fact that the Europe 72 Dark Stars rank so highly and that it's the best or most consistently great era for that song, I think is reflective of the tour as a whole. Sure, you might find other individual shows from other years that you like better, but I think you're hard pressed to find a tour with 22 shows in a row that are this consistently uh, great to all time great level. Having said that, there are a lot of tours I haven't heard very much from, so I would love to be proven wrong on that front because that means there are many more great shows and tours for me to hear. As it says in the wheel, bound to cover just a little more ground. I just want to touch briefly before we finish on how I think Dark Star and the other one compare to each other. I think Dark Star is more melodic, whereas the other one is more percussive. I mean, Bill Kreutzmann has a writing credit on it just for providing the signature drum beat after all. Dark Star is more nebulous and free flowing, whereas the other one is more driving and tends to stay within or get sucked back towards the theme more often. I used to characterize them as Dark Star being a good trip and the other one being a bad trip, but I now feel that that's an oversimplification. Certainly for these third stage Dark Stars, they at the very least have segments that are very much bad trip territory. Dark Star sounds like shooting off into the far reaches of the galaxy whereas the other one sounds like drilling to the Earth's core. Both are cool journeys. It depends what you're in the mood for. And it's funny because in many ways, structurally, at least as far as the sections of the song, they're quite similar. You have an opening riff and some thematic jamming, and then eventually a first verse, and then some spacey segments and more jamming, and then back around to the second verse, although eventually in both cases they stopped playing the second verse 
at least sometimes, and then often a transition into something else. But beyond those similarities with the different sections, in many ways they couldn't be more different, but because of those similarities, to me they're always like two sides of the same coin in a way. Sort of like fire and ice, fire being the other one and ice being dark star. I did also observe some interesting trends with the numbers when I was tabulating all of those uh, statistics with respect to the lengths. So on Europe 72, the average length of the other one discounting songs in the middle was 22 minutes, and the average length of Dark Star was 32 minutes 20 seconds. So that's a significant disparity. When you include songs included in the middle, which gives the other one a much bigger boost than it does Dark Star, uh, Dark Star still holds a significant advantage, an average of 33 minutes 13 seconds to 30 minutes on the dot. And I think those differences speak to all else being equal, they have more room to explore within Dark Star, uh, with it being more free-flowing by nature and the uh, the melodic range itself as far as how much room they have to play within the bounds of what can be considered correct notes. You know, I said with the guys, Dark Star feels expansive, whereas the other one feels constrictive or like collapsing in as opposed to unfolding, never-ending petals of a flower or something. And as far as the average lengths for the jam suites in full, the average other one jam suite for this tour was 54 minutes, 51 seconds, and the average Dark Star jam suite was 58 minutes, 20 seconds, which is about the same difference as the average length of those the individual songs, which kind of shatters the notion that I came across at one point, or not shatters, but uh, puts a dent in the notion I saw uh, at some point in my reading years ago, someone suggested that, uh, you know, the real ones know that other one nights in 72 were actually crazier than the Dark Star shows. And I see where they're coming from in the sense that the other one would be more intricately woven into the suite as far as flowing out of trucking or drums and then having more stuff uh, crammed in the middle of it. And uh, as far as transitions out of the, into other stuff, uh, it's about equal with Dark Star. You could even argue that Dark Star had crazier transitions into other things because they weren't playing the second verse, so they weren't starting the transition from a predictable place every night. Um, but anyhow, I don't think that notion is necessary, necessarily fair. Sure. If you look at the track listing of another one jam suite compared to a dark star one, it might look more wild on paper, but as far as the actual characteristics of the playing, I think they're probably equal. If anything, having said that, I think Europe 72 is a better dark star era than it is another one era, even though they both produced 
all-time great versions. With the other one, I loved about half of the 12 versions and was a bit more neutral about the other half. Uh, whereas here with Darkstar, I love 10 of the 11 and am neutral about that last one. And I do believe I've been objective enough that that goes beyond my typical preference between the two, which remains that Darkstar is not only my favorite of the two, but my favorite Grateful Dead song overall. Okay, congratulations, you've reached the end. I'm really sorry for the extravagant length. I can see we have crossed the five-hour mark for the first time. I'm not sure if that's necessarily something worthy of celebration. Uh, let me know if you think this was way too long. I try not to make a habit of it, but this topic, if I like to cover it with the the same degree of thoroughness that we have with others of a similar ilk. Uh, this is just as long as it naturally became. I wasn't trying to shoot for any given length. So anyhow, real quick through the usual housekeeping matters, I encourage you to follow the show. You can find the show on Instagram and TikTok at rocktalk.dr.cropper, on Twitter at rocktalkdrcrop with two Ps, on Facebook, LinkedIn, and YouTube, Rock Talk with Dr. Cropper. And you can also email me, rocktalk.dr.cropper at gmail.com. Also, in addition to following, you can reach out on any of those platforms if you're interested in merchandise, white t-shirts with black writing for $40 Canadian or two for 70, uh, black writing as in the logo that you see wherever you're listening, or hoodies with that design for $80 Canadian, and for the hoodies, I also have black with white writing, the inverse of the logo that you see. Um, and also, if you feel so inclined to leave a rating and review with the streaming platform that you use, those are very helpful to me. As I've mentioned a few times now, Apple and Spotify are both introducing premium subscriptions in the near future, which is something I intend to incorporate. And I'm working hard to think of what benefits I'll be offering to those of you who are interested in those. And yeah, just thank you all so much for listening. If you're new to the show, welcome. I hope you enjoyed what you heard. If you've been listening for a while, I appreciate the loyalty. I'm really enjoying the ride and I hope you are as well. Next week, we have another Grateful Dead episode. I'm going to be discussing their Spring 77 tour and ranking the shows from it. Fret not, I have way less detailed notes for it. I think it will be a much shorter episode than this one. I know it will be. And the week after that, I'm going to be interviewing my dad for Father's Day like I did with my mom a few weeks ago or a month ago. And the week after that, Spencer will join us again to talk about Bob Dylan's Blonde on Blonde album for its 55th anniversary and that 
uh, wraps up June and then the first week of July, I'm going to be ranking The Doors' six studio albums to commemorate uh, 50 years since Jim Morrison passed away. And after that, I'm going to take a little break for two or three weeks. So, uh, yeah. And with that, I bid you good night. I'm going to go to bed, not even have a celebratory beer, I don't think, because tomorrow is record store day and the dead are releasing the first Paris show on vinyl. So I need to get up bright and early to be lined up outside the store at 730. All right. Thank you all so much. Have an awesome weekend and I will see you next week. Class dismissed. Thank you.